Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, August 6th, 2013. Yet today's the day I stick my neck out and put it on the chopping block, put myself on the firing line. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think uh, critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, as promised, today is a day that I warned you about. It's the day in which I lay out the Lutheran doctrine of baptism. Now, baptism can be a cantankerous doctrine that people debate and cause all kinds of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not necessary. What I would ask that you do is open up your Bible and follow along. If what I'm saying is true, believe what the Scriptures say because I'm saying the same thing as Scripture. If what I'm saying is not true, don't believe it. But at the end of this Don't let any of you say those Lutherans don't base what they believe about baptism on Scripture, but on tradition or man-made things or anything like that. No, that's not true. The whole goal for me in, in this episode of Fighting for the Faith is that we will once and for all put to bed that ridiculous canard that people put out there that the Lutherans, the Lutheran doctrine of baptism isn't based upon what the Bible teaches. That is not true at all. It's not even a fair statement. Instead, it's based completely on Scripture, every last bit of it, and and the question for you to determine is, have the Lutherans rightly understood what the biblical texts say? That's the goal. So, you know, the, so that I can stop getting these emails from people saying, there isn't a single biblical passage that says any of the things that you Lutherans say about baptism. Ha! Not even close. <laughs> it's like it's not even close. It's not even fair. So that's the idea. You know, grab some popcorn, you, you know, you 
grab a beverage and you know and enjoy the time take notes and also what I strongly recommend if you haven't already Listen to my series of lectures on how to be snookered and bamboozled and hoodwinked and all that kind of stuff, which is basically a primer in uh, in uh, biblical hermeneutics. G- g- read it. Uh, go go and get those lectures and listen to those lectures and grab the notes there too and test to see if, if I'm engaging in sound biblical hermeneutics or if I'm engaging in obfuscation in uh, in laying out the uh, the Lutheran doctrine of baptism. So, you know, this is be one of those things where I think for a lot of you it'll be educational. For some of you it might be shocking. For some of you this presentation might actually make you mad. I I understand all of that because I'm somebody who came kicking and screaming into this view of baptism. That being the case, I understand that there is a lot of heat and very little light shed regarding this document. And my hope is that this episode of Fighting for the Faith will shed light. And again, I just humbly ask that you follow along with an open Bible. Follow along with a bo- open Bible and ask yourself the question, is this what these texts say? And what I'm going to do here, in fact, if you're listening right now live, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com and you want to download the the PDF that I've made available, there's a PDF that I've put together specifically for this episode of Fighting for the Faith, and the uh, the name of the uh, the PDF is What the Bible Teaches About Baptism and How the Earliest Christians Understood These Biblical Texts. It's a PDF that you can download, and it contains a preface with all of the biblical passages that, uh, that, that back up what the Lutheran doctrine of baptism is. And in there, we have all of the biblical texts, and I've bolded the, the sections that are highlighted that, you know, that kind of key in on, uh, that emphasize what we're talking about regarding baptism. But in this document, what I've also done is I've given huge, a huge number of quotations from the earliest Christians prior to the usurpation of the Bishop of Rome and the creation of the Roman Catholic Church. But when when Catholicism was just Catholicism with a small c, not Roman Catholicism, and how the earliest Christians understood these biblical texts that we'll be uh, looking at today. So that's there you know, to basically back up that, listen— the Lutherans take great pains to not engage in innovation when it came to any of their doctrines, especially the doctrine of baptism. Uh, Luther did not create his own doctrine of baptism. Instead, what Luther believed, taught, and confessed regarding baptism is the same thing that the church has believed, taught, and confessed from its earliest days, and it's based upon the biblical text. So, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and I need to let you know that uh, what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be playing a interview. Uh, it's not quite an interview, um, it, it, but it is I, a conversation that I had earlier today with Pastor Daniel Price of Trinity Church for, of Northwest Arkansas, and uh, the two of us you know, have this conversation together, and there will be no commercial breaks on this episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to go straight through. Again, it's long. Feel free to pause and take notes or, or do anything you want. But again, the goal is that at the end of it, you'll say, okay, I understand how the Lutherans get their, their doctrine of baptism. Here's how they understand these texts. It's not that it isn't based on Scripture. It is based on Scripture. It's based on how they're understanding these texts. And then the question is, 
is that is is that what these texts mean? That's the question for you. So enjoy the program. And again, I'm sticking myself out on the firing line. I'm not doing this to be cantankerous or anything like that. But uh, partway through the uh, program, what we will be doing is reviewing how Pastor Matt Haney, uh, who took shots at me la- you know a week or so ago uh, on the internet and said that I was a heretic, we'll, we'll we'll take a look at how he handles these texts by way of comparison in this episode of Fighting for the Faith. So with that. We're going to dive into the program proper, and here's my conversation earlier today with Pastor Daniel Emery Price. Here we go. All right, on the line I have uh, Pastor Price of Trinity Church in north of Northwest Arkansas, and I've invited him on the program today to uh, sit in with me, if you would, and present to you uh, the Lutheran doctrine of baptism, hopefully, so that uh, you would... Uh, number one, understand that we don't <laughs> we don't just pull it out of thin air. It's based upon Scripture, and uh, and we also find that we are in accord with what the earliest Christians believed, taught, and confessed regarding these biblical passages. Pastor Price, thanks for coming on the air with me. Thank you for inviting me, Chris. All right, so uh, we've got uh, we've got a hefty uh, thing that we've got to accomplish today, and. Um, Yesterday on my program, I was I, you know, I, kind of cluing people into uh, a, a recent exchange that I had uh, with somebody. And it, because of the fact that I do not believe uh, the standard American evangelical line that baptism is a sign to the world that you've made a decision to follow Jesus, I don't see that in Scripture. And uh, from time to time, I take swipes at that that understanding of uh, baptism. I get a lot of emails uh, from people asking me questions or challenging uh, you know, the, the Lutheran doctrine of baptism. But oftentimes I get emails from people uh, who will say uh, that I need to repent and that there are no biblical passages that teach the Lutheran doctrine of baptism. And uh, I, one fellow recently emailed me this, and so I emailed him literally a, uh, a just simply a list of passages and uh, I and you know I, I sent him Acts chapter two verses thirty eight through thirty nine Romans chapter six three through five Colossians two eleven through twelve Acts twenty two verse sixteen Titus three four through seven First Peter three twenty one through twenty two and John three five and I sent him that email and and all I said to him was this I said you tell me what baptism does its purpose according to these scriptures who it is for and i and I, as for me i believe exactly what these passages say well i sent that off and no sooner did i send it off that i received a response to him where he literally took every one of these passages and tried to demonstrate to me that these are not talking about baptism they're about something else or that you know i miss it you know construing them and, and stuff like that and i didn't actually give any commentary i just said i believe exactly what these passages say and uh, what I found fascinating with his hermeneutic is is that, um, and, and I oftentimes you know privately refer to this as what I call a dehydrated uh, hermeneutic, where these baptismal texts aren't about baptism; they take the water out. Oh, it's not talking about water baptism; it's talking about something else. And uh, so, I, what I did is, over the years, I've been collecting uh, quotes from the church fathers. I, I've you know got these from various and sundry sources over the years, and there's kind of a large document that I have sitting on my computer. And so, what I did is, I sent them the uh, quotations from the early, these earliest Christians, the early church fathers, all of them prior to the sixth uh, century. And I said, well, here's how the earliest Christians understood these biblical texts. And no joke, I sent that email off and. Uh, and, you know, when I came back to my computer, I had received a response from him. 
And he literally, no joke, pronounced every single one of the people that I quoted to be heretics. Uh, we're talking about Barnabas. We're talking about uh, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, one of the disciples of the Apostle John. Um, we're talking about Irenaeus, the, uh, the great Christian apologist against the Valentinian Gnostics, uh, St. Augustine, uh, Cyprian of Carthage. I mean, the list is actually you know, quite large of the people. He declared them all to be heretics. And I thought, that is a bizarre way of doing this. And so when I pointed out to him that none of these guys are considered to be heretics and that, you know, even men like uh, Albert Muller and others consider these men to be Orthodox Christians, um, you know, then he changed his story. You know, and the, the criticism went from him saying that there are no biblical passages to support uh, the Lutheran doctrine of baptism. He changed his mind and he said, no, that my problem and the, by extension the problem of these church fathers is that we take these uh, biblical passages literally. Now, I thought that was a fascinating turn of events, if you would, you know, from going from having no biblical text at all to now his critique is that I'm taking these passages literally. And uh, <laughs> you've made the transition from kind of the American evangelical view of baptism to the Lutheran view, uh, similar to, in a similar way that I have. What do you, I mean, just right off the bat? What are your initial thoughts of you know, the, kind of that story and your uh, and your experience in in trying to convey to people what you believe the scriptures teach regarding baptism? Well, it's a. Uh... Well, I've gotten this, the same uh, the same charge, uh, and they'll say, "Well, you you're just re- you're reading these passages too literally," um, which is uh, something that I, I'm glad to be guilty of. <laughs> and uh, you know, as, as a, coming out of out of a, the, the charismatic um, movement that I that I grew up in, um, I, I hit I hit a point where. I realized that I really didn't have any idea uh, why I believed what I believed, um, that it, I was just kind of uh, believing it because that's what I've been told uh, always. And so um, as, I, as I looked at, at Scripture, uh, I spent a couple of years just simply studying Scripture and, and studying uh, different theologies and things, and uh, uh, Lutheranism really wasn't something that, that came to the fore uh, right away. And uh, as as I did that, uh, I, I found that I didn't really fit in anywhere. And um, the reason was exactly because of that, because I was taking these scriptures literally. I was taking passages literally. And uh, when when I discovered uh, the, the some of some of the Lutheran doctrines, uh, that became very easy uh, for me to slide right in there. Uh, they do precisely that. Right on. It, was, it was a natural, it was a natural fit. Uh, where, wow! Like, I, I thought literally that that I was alone in in this view that like you could just take what Scripture says uh, for the most part uh, and leave it, um, and that's exactly what they what they do. And so when you have these, uh, it's always it's always you know there's always a double standard that comes into play there, where uh, they'll not want you to take something literally that doesn't work with a systematic theology. Um, but they're more than happy to take passages literally that do work for their systematic theology, uh, where, whereas Lutherans can take uh, both of them because of uh, their willingness to accept some, some amount of paradox and say that, that both are true, right. which is just, just totally freeing. But, uh, yeah, that, that's it. I mean, as you, as you try to explain uh, baptism, uh, it's, the, the, it's almost impossible for people to, to lay aside 
uh, their preaching. Um, and I understand uh, as well, and I sympathize with it, uh, but uh, that being said, I think it's, it's very important that we do take what is being said. And, and if you have a situation where um, you don't have any passage, one view of baptism, and then you have passages, when taken literally, say about baptism, uh, you are, you're forced to, to reconcile that well and saying, well, there's nothing, you, you don't have a single clear passage that, you know, that, that says uh, what you were saying earlier, which is, uh, you know, that this is, a, you know, this is your act of obedience or this is a, this is a symbolic thing and all that. Uh, but you do have baptism described in certain ways quite, uh, and so they're, they're, those two things kind of fight against each other. Yeah. Now, what, here's what I want to do, and um, if what I'm going to recommend for the folks listening here is that um, I, I want to demonstrate that uh, we're not engaging in any hermeneutical monkey business. And what I mean by that is this, is that uh, I recently uh, presented a series of lectures on how to not be deceived, schnookered, and bamboozled. And the whole point of those lectures was to lay out the basics of sound biblical hermeneutics. Because context, context, context oftentimes will uh, prevent you from being deceived. But uh, there's a little bit more to hermeneutics than just context, context, context. It's this understanding that clear passages always govern unclear, and you're looking for clear didactic texts that are going to govern other passages. And over and again, what I see, and this is you know my observation, is what I see in people who uh, want to say that uh, baptism is a sign that I've made a decision to become a Christ follower or something like that. They want to evacuate it of any efficacy. Um, that they they are not following a sound uh, biblical hermeneutic. Uh, what they're doing is they're taking off-topic texts to eliminate the the, the texts that are on topic, and they don't uh, they don't have a CDs doctrine. And what I mean by that is a central passage that you know kind of is the governing one in, in in which all of them work. So what happens is is that because they're not following the the basics uh, principles of sound biblical hermeneutics. Um, it's really hard to determine what any of these passages mean because they're using off-topic texts or other texts to eliminate and blow up, if you would, uh, the the, uh, the clear passages. But when I look in the writings of the church fathers, and again, we're talking about the earliest church fathers prior to the usurpation of the bishop of Rome, and the uh, and the uh, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, the weeds that grew up in the church during the Middle Ages. Um, that uh, that came about, uh, you know, during that period when the Bible was locked up, people were not hearing uh, the scriptures except if you knew Latin and things like that. It was all kinds of weird uh, human traditions and other things that uh, crept into the church during that time. And so, the, this the, all of the quotes of the church fathers that I am uh, bringing to bear in today's episode, and this will be available on our podcast feed as a as a download. They're there so that you can see how the early church understood these texts. The text itself is, speaks for itself, and when you read it, you know, literally, you find that the church also read these passages literally, and this creates a good sound uh, hermeneutic. And what I find interesting is, is that if we were to look, you know, for a what I call a sedes doctrine, this is not my term, but this is a hermeneutical term that deals with the seed of doctrine. Over and again, uh, I would point people to the fact that uh, in the 4th century, 
uh, what was known in the in church history as the rule of faith really got hammered down to a kind of a solid uh, state uh, at the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed, which was in part formulated against the uh, the Arians and the, their refusal to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, that in there you have a statement that is actually very old that predates the Nicene Creed as to what baptism does. And in, that, uh, in the Nicene Creed, it says, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly what the Nicene Creed says. And so I would, that because that comes straight out of Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39, we're going to start there with the, with the presupposition that that's probably going to be the central text that we work with. And when you read the Church Fathers, there's really two texts, actually I would say three, that, uh, that if you were to talk to an early Christian, you know, what is baptism about? They would take you to Acts chapter 2, they would take you to Titus chapter 3, or they would take you to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And uh, so we're going to take a look at those kind of in that order, and we're going to build at this point, a, you know, a, 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 taking a look biblically, what is going on here, and, uh, and see if then if, uh, if that makes sense and, and jives with sound biblical hermeneutics. Does that make sense? That, makes, that, that sounds good. I think it's, I think it's important, like, as people go into trying to figure out what they believe about baptism as well, they... If you have a view of baptism that damns 75 to 80% of Christians throughout history, that in itself is, uh, is rather damning of your view. And so right. um, if, if, if 80% of the church uh, is damned, then I, I think that perhaps uh, you should reconsider or you know, at, least, at least listen uh, to other arguments. Right. What it is the view that you're holding, uh, because that in itself is a very yeah. It's, it, 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 it's a damning it's a damning opinion to hold. I would I would think. Yeah, I, yeah. If your if your view of baptism makes it so that you have to anathematize literally every Christian prior to the 16th century, we got a problem. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's also because with unknowingly doing so, um, you confess that uh, Christ has uh, seen fit to leave his church in the dark uh, for 1,500 years. Yeah. You know, um, and, and that in itself um, is, um, is, is a pretty difficult thing to swallow, uh, yep. that, that Christ has promised not to leave his church, that he's promised to build his church. Um, what he hasn't promised to do is uh, leave it in the dark for 1,500 years. And so, uh, right. Uh, All right. So... I, think that, I think you want to take that into consideration. All right, so let's take a look at the first passage. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39. Let me read it. So this is the Apostle Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's just laid into these folks, preached the gospel to them, and here's the result. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Stop. Okay? So, on a cold reading here, the question is, from Acts chapter 2, according to this passage, what is the purpose of baptism? Answer, it's for the forgiveness of of sins. Now, here's the second part of it. According to this passage, who is it for? Is it only for adults? No, the passage itself says that it's also for you and for your 
children. Now, what I'm going to basically say is, is that the Lutheran doctrine of baptism is not simplistic, but it's simple. And what I mean by that is this. What, when it says the baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, what it means is that it's for the forgiveness of sins. When it says in this passage that it's for you and for your children, that means that it's for you and for your children. It's actually that simple, isn't it, uh, Pastor Price? Yeah, I, th- I think so. And, and uh, the thing that they'll usually do here is they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll take it and say, well, it's also for those who are far off and for everyone whom the, uh, the Lord our God calls to himself. And they'll take that and say, like, see, this is for you know, anyone who believes. Um, but even, even under that hermeneutic you, and understanding of this text, you, you still have to say, well, children are still mentioned, uh, so it is for children. Uh, children, children are represented in the, in the group who it's for, and then we would obviously confess, yeah, it is for all who are far off, it's for all nations, it's for right. uh, Gentiles everywhere. Right. Now, he, here's kind of an important thing we need to address here, is that there is a common uh, you know, charge thrown against people who hold to the Lutheran view of baptism, is that it's salvation by works. But the Lutheran will always say, um, listen, uh, baptism is not my work, it's God's work. And I think all of these passages actually bear that out very nicely. Okay, um, uh, Pastor Price, um, I, I know you ba- you've baptized a couple of people in your lifetime, right? That's right. Um, I have, <laughs> in doing so, um, you know, the person being baptized, can they forgive their own sins? They cannot. Okay, so who's offering the forgiveness of sins then in baptism? That, that would it's the, na- the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Uh, forgiveness of sins is the uh, the the entrance, uh, as it were, to uh, to the kingdom of God. The the keys that you need, the, the key to unlock the door uh, to to become uh, a member of the household of God, and uh, that that must be done. Oh, you know, as I, I'm reminded of uh, in Matthew when, when Jesus uh, heals the the man who's lowered down through the roof, it says. Uh, Sins are forgiven, and they say, uh, "Who can forgive sins but God?" Uh, and they're right in saying that. The, the right. and, uh, and they're right in saying that. That's a correct statement. Who can forgive sins but God? So, therefore, uh, yes, that would be only God. Only God can forgive sins. So, the idea here is is that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. If forgiveness of sins is really truly being conferred and offered and given in baptism, that's not being given. That's not the person doing a work for himself. It's him receiving from God something that God is doing. And I think it's important to note this, that the be baptized, repent and be baptized, the verb there is in the passive voice, which means that the person doing it isn't doing it. It's being done to them. It's being given to them. So baptism for the forgiveness of sins and this is God's work, not ours. It's uh, the promises for you and for your children. So here's kind of another kind of a good, important follow-up question. If somebody truly has had their sins forgiven, is that saving? It would be the, the thing you would be saying. I mean, you have, uh, you have you know, your doctrine of regeneration, and you have to be born again to be, uh, to be a Christian. Well, certainly, and, and obviously we'll get into that, but... Um, yeah, there's no there's no salvation apart from the forgiveness of sins. Right. And I think all Orthodox Christians would confess that. Right. So, I mean, already here in Acts chapter 2, 
um, a baptism is being spoken of in a way that is salvific. I think that that's a fair way of, of talking about this. Now, I want to talk about some of the passages then from the writings of the church fathers, because what happens is is that somebody you know who I again I refer to it you know kind of lovingly as a dehydrated hermeneutic will try to take the water part out of it okay but let's let's take a look at then how the earliest christians have understood this text and and what they understand what's being offered here so uh from the extant writings of the church fathers first one is the letter of barnabas which is a first century document in fact it was uh, written in uh, AD 74 and here's what uh, barnabas writes he says regarding baptism we have the evidence of Scripture that Israel would refuse to accept the washing which confers uh, or carries the remission of sins and would set up a substitution of their own instead. Okay, so here in the epistle of Barnabas, this is chapter 11, like verse 1 of this particular epistle. Right off the bat, the epistle of Barnabas talks about baptism which confers the remission of sins so this gives us a hint as to how the uh, old the, uh, the the ancient christians understood the word for so you know repentance and repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins so the baptism is conferring the remission of sins according to the epistle of barnabas from the shepherd of hermas another first century document uh, written in 80 AD the shepherd of hermas chapter 4 reads i have heard sir said i to the shepherd from some teacher that there is no other repentance except that which took place when we went down into the water and obtained the remission of our former sins. He said to me, you have heard rightly, for it is so. So here we've got two first century uh, documents that are talking about obtaining the remission of sins and the um, baptism itself conferring the remission of sins. Irenaeus, in his uh, great work against the uh, uh, Valentinian Gnostics called Against Heresies, this was written, uh, written late in the second century, here's what he says. He says, and when we came to refute them, the Gnostics, we shall show uh, it, 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 in its fitting place that the class of men have been instigated by Satan, so the uh, Gnostics are by Satan, to a denial of that baptism which is regeneration to God and thus to a renunciation of the whole Christian faith, for the baptism instituted by the visible Jesus was for the remission of sins. In his demonstration of the apostolic preaching, uh, written roughly about 192 A.D. from what we can gather, here's what he said. Now faith occasions this for us, even as elders. The disciples of the apostles have handed it down to us. First of all, it bids us to keep in mind that we have received baptism for the remission of sins in the name of God the Father and the name of Jesus Christ the Son, who was incarnate and died and rose again and in the Holy Spirit of God. This baptism is the seal of eternal life and the new birth unto God that we should no longer be sons of mortal men, but of the eternal and perpetual God. Now, it's significant to note here. Already, just in these uh, these citations from the early church fathers, we have no church fathers saying, baptism is a sign to the world that you've made a decision for Jesus. Nothing even remotely approaching it. In fact, what we're seeing here, it consistently from the writings of the church fathers, is they're speaking of the efficacy of baptism, and it's God's working, and it's God's doing something. It confers the re- remission of sins. It's for the remission of sins, and this is where, the way they're talking about it. Cyprian of Carthage, another fantastic Orthodox guy, um, he 
in his uh, in his letters, uh, letter number sixty four. Um, I'll read the end of it. Actually, let me let me let me read to this for you because again, in Acts chapter two, we have two things going on. One is for the remission of sins and the promises for your children. So, in this letter that we have, letter sixty four, uh, Cyprian of Carthage is dealing with whether or not it's appropriate to baptize infants before or after they are eight days old. That's actually what's going on in this in this letter. So here's what uh, Cyprian writes. He says, As to what pertains to the case of infants, you, Phidus, this is the person he's writing to, said that they ought not to be baptized within the second or third day after their birth, that the old law of circumcision must be taken into consideration, and that you did not think that one should be baptized and sanctified within the eighth day after his birth. In our council, it seemed to us far otherwise. No one agreed to the course which you thought should be taken. Rather, we judged that the mercy and grace of God ought to be denied to no man born. If in the case of the worst sinners and those who formerly sinned much against God, when afterwards they believe the remission of their sins is granted and no one is held back from baptism and grace, how much more then should an infant not be held back who, having been recently been born, had done no sin except that born of the flesh, according to Adam, he has contracted the contagion of that old death from his first being born. For this very reason does he, an infant, approach more easily to, quote, receive the remission of sins, because the sins forgiven him are not his own, but those of another, namely Adam. So, in this letter of uh, from Cyprian of Carthage, dated 253 A.D., the question before him was whether or not you should baptize an infant before or after they're eight days old in reference to the fact that circumcision was not, was not done to male infants in Israel until after they were eight days old. And in Cyprian's opinion, you no, know, don't wait eight days. Go ahead and baptize him as soon as you can. That's exactly what his argument is there, and it's dated 253 A.D., uh, you want to take a uh, you want to comment on that, Pastor Price? Yeah. Well, one of, one of the things I, I noticed, uh, you know, in these writings too, is that um, they they never look at that of that at that word for, uh, and they don't ever translate it. Uh, you know, you can tell by the way, you know, as, as when they say that, you know, we went down into the water and obtained the remission uh, of our former sins, and in this kind of language, um, for, and then my. Say well that that word for means because of or in light of the forgiveness of sins. I mean they don't talk that way at all. No. I mean, there's there's not there's not anything um, close to that talked about here, uh, which is a, an argument you know uh, that that you're going to hear uh, a lot uh, when you talk about this. That like well that word for you know that could be uh, that could be because of or in light of the, the forgiveness of sins. So because you've been forgiven, therefore you go and be baptized. But uh, none of these none of these guys, uh, you know, in the early church uh, looked at it that way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And and so I I find that I find that very yeah, yeah. to find someone in the early church that would interpret that that way. Right. It, yeah. In fact, that's kind of the issue is is that they're always seeing in baptism the efficacy of it, and it's clearly in their view it's God's work. God is offering promises there and is remitting sins and washing them away. This is how. The ancient church understood this. Now, in, in another kind of important note here. Um, so far, the uh, people who've I, who I've uh, mentioned here, Barnabas, the, whoever wrote The Shepherd of Hermas, Irenaeus, Cyprian of Carthage, each and every one of these guys 
um, they were Greek-speaking church fathers, okay? Um, these were people who, uh, they, Koine Greek was a language that they spoke in and probably thought in. And yet, because, despite the fact that they were fluent in, in uh, Koine Greek, uh, this didn't prevent them from seeing the efficacy of baptism and that things were being received in it. No, they, you know, they spoke and, and thought and, and wrote in uh, Koine Greek better than I, I can ever imagine or hope to. And uh, they had no problem seeing that it was for, that means to receive or you know, that baptism conferred these promises. Okay. Moving. Yeah, that's, that's- yeah, move it. It's not like they got out the lectionary and yeah, you know, the, the, the lexicon rather, and uh, you know, and, and cross reference this stuff. This is this is a language that they're um, more than just uh, have learned, but a, a language that they actually speak and, and read and write and think in. Yep. And, and so uh, they would, you'd be hard pressed to find the equivalent. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, they, they, there's no Greek scholar alive that could match them in their understanding of Koine Greek because these guys lived it and spoke it and thunk it. So um, Nicene Creed. I, I referenced this date 325 A.D., uh, the uh, the third article, and I believe in one holy Catholic. That means universal and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. Nicene Creed, if you were to just simply read that and ask what's baptism for, it's for the remission of sins. Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, here's what he says. Do you have an infant child? Allow sin no opportunity. Rather, let the infant be sanctified from childhood. From his most tender age, let him be consecrated by the Spirit. Do you fear the seal of baptism because of the weakness of nature? Oh, what pull, uh, pusillanimous mother and oh, and oh of little, how little faith. Well enough, some will say, for those who ask for baptism, but what do you have to say about those who are still children and aware neither of loss nor of grace? Shall we baptize them too? Certainly, I respond. If there is any pressing danger, better that they be sanctified unaware than they depart unsealed or uninitiated. This is his oration on baptism from 388 AD. Okay? So, I mean, our earliest reference to infant baptism um, you know, in the church, writings of the church fathers predates this by more than a hundred years at Cyprian of Carthage. But there we have another example of, again, the simple understanding. It's for your children. Okay. God, Christ is not preventing the children from coming to him. He's bringing the children to himself and remitting even their sin. So I think that's a good way of putting it. John Christostom in the 388, uh, here's what he wrote. He says, you see how many are the benefits of baptism, and some think its heavenly grace consists only in the remission of sins. So notice he's saying, some only think of, of it only having the remission of sins. Well, there's way more than that. He says, but what we have encountered, ten honors it bestows. For this reason, we baptize even infants, though they are not defiled by personal sins, so that they may be given them, given to them holiness, righteousness, adoption, inheritance, brotherhood it, with Christ, and that they may be his uh, His." That's Christ's members. Now, I'm going to skip over Augustine's uh, teaching on this because it's, you know, it's, at this point it's getting redundant. But I'm going to, uh, in, if you want, again, I'm going to make this d- entire document available as a download with the podcast so uh, you, know, you can read these uh, yourself. But I'm going to fast forward uh, to the uh, May of 418. May of 418. And in May of 418, they're convened in Carthage. 
a a church council called the Council of Carthage to investigate Pelagianism uh, that was uh, basically met to take a look at the Pelagian heresy. The Pelagian heresy denied the doctrine of original sin, denied that men are born dead in trespasses and sins. Um, and uh, yeah, and the, the, this church council met, and by the way, uh, Augustine was not present at this, uh, in May of uh, May of 418, sorry, yeah, I got to change a quick, quick date here. In May of 418, and um, listen to what Canon two from this church council. This is 300 Christian bishops meeting in Carthage. Here's what they determined regarding the Pelagian heresy. They said, if any man says that newborn children need not be baptized, or that they should indeed be baptized for the remission of sins but that they have in them no original sin inherited from Adam, which must be washed away in the bath of regeneration, so that in their case the formula of baptism for the remission of sins must not be taken literally, but only figuratively, let him be anathema, because according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the sin of Adam has passed upon all. Now, this is important, this, and this actually kind of also serves as a bridge to our next text, but this is important that when the church confronted the Pelagian heresy, that one of the primary arguments against the Pelagian heresy was that newborn infants must be baptized for the remission of sins, and it wasn't figurative, it was literal, because they, like all of us, were born dead in trespasses and sins. So they anathematized anybody who would basically say that, you know, yeah, it's for the remission of sins, but not really. That was the, the whole point of the Council of Carthage. And uh, two years earlier at the Council of uh, Millium, uh, number two, they had a very similar formula that they put together in their canon number three, and that's in the document. But it's important to note here that against the Pelagians, uh, you know, again, we got Acts chapter two, being baptized for the remission of sins. And then, you know, kind of the first occurrence, you know, that, we, that we'll talk about here, uh, referencing Titus chapter 3, the bath of regeneration. But again, infant baptism was the very thing that was used to disprove and show that the Pelagians were heretics. And I think that's an important note. You want to add anything to that, Pastor? Oh, it, you know, it, just that it, it, it's, it's amazing how, how much, you know, when, you, when you're reading that, how, how the remission of sins part of baptism is just so, so assumed. Yeah. Um, by these guys, I mean, it, it's not even it's not even a, a question until until this council here. Um, uh, of course, it's that. Um, is it is it anything else uh, besides that? And, and then they answer, you know, yes, it's it's even more than that. And when you when you're talking about baptizing infants, uh, if you, when you remove that, uh, you you do bring into question the doctrine of original sin, and not only just original sin as uh, a sin nature, but also in, imputing guilt, for that we are all guilty of Adam's sin. Right. Um, they viewed that as, as a, a very uh, dangerous thing to, to start questioning. Well, let's let's like not baptize. You know, let's not let's not think it's for the remission of sins. Yep. Um, it, it's 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 very it's very telling of, of how how far we come to where we can then not baptize infants and then uh, also have to then, by necessity, come up with another doctrine to, uh, to ease our conscience, right. which uh, would be the doctrine uh, of um, age of accountability, which uh, 
you would, you would be very hard pressed to find that uh, in the right. scripture. Right now, notice this is kind of important: is that um, that the Council of Carthage uh, from uh, May of uh, 418. They did not argue the age of accountability at all. That wasn't even on their radar. Um, and uh, you know, Cyprian of Carthage, age of accountability, not on his radar at all. He's not even thinking in those terms. The way he's thinking is is that these infants that we have are all born dead in trespasses and sins, and Adam's guilt has been imputed to them, and we do not want to deny them the, the remission of sins that's offered in baptism. Yeah, I think, I think it comes that back to full circle, too. When you know, as you were saying, you you no one enters the kingdom of God without having their sins forgiven. So the the problem that you're presented with then is that we know clearly from Scripture that everyone is born dead in trespasses and sin. We know that, as David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. We know that this is not just imputed sin nature, but it's imputed actual guilt. And then we also know that without forgiveness of sins, that no one enters the kingdom of God. And so then the question is, how then uh, can we deny what Scripture has, the prescription that Scripture has told us that how the remission of sins, or at least uh, in part how the remission of sins is obtained, how do you then deny that from infants? Right. And I think there's an important distinction we want to make here, because Again, we, this is really important when you, you, you know, baptism isn't our work, it's God's work. And here's a good way to think about it, is that Christ died for our sins on the cross. We cannot go back in time to the cross, to Calvary, and collect up his blood and, his, and the redemption that was won for us on the cross. So that was where it historically was accomplished for us. And I think a good way to think of baptism then is because it's delivering Christ's work, it's for the remission of sins, is that it becomes the delivery system for what Christ accomplished on the cross. I think that's a fair way to talk about it. Yeah, one of the ways that I, I, try, I try to explain it to people when when I'm uh, when I'm dealing with this when they're when they're first coming into this kind of thinking is that uh, the cross is where uh, forgiveness of sins was wrought, uh, but the means of grace are where forgiveness of sins is brought. Right. And so, and there's a difference between uh, where it was won and uh, where where it comes to you, because like you said, uh, you you can't go uh, to the cross. And you can go find, you know, the blood of Christ uh, sprinkled on the ground of, uh, on Calvary and apply that to yourself. Right. Yep, that's absolutely right. Okay, now this. Now, looking back then at the Council of Carthage of May of, of 418, no mention of uh, age of accountability. I mean, they're uh, basically declaring the Pelagians to be heretics. And um, and are speaking specifically as you know, baptizing infants. Again, this goes back to. Uh, to Acts chapter 2. Baptism is for the remission of sins, and it's for you, and it's for your children. This is, they are literally understanding that biblical biblical passage, literally. They're understanding that baptism conveys something, it's God's work, and that the promises attached for the remission of sins is for you as well as for infants, and they use that argument against 
the Pelagians in their uh, denunciation and of, of the Pelagian heresy, which then leads us to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, because that's also referenced in uh, the canons of the Council of Carthage, uh, talking about the bath of regeneration. Now, this is important because it, Titus chapter 3 is the place that so clearly makes it clear that when baptism isn't work, we're saved by grace through faith. Listen, here's what it says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by or through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So in this passage, it's very clear we're not saved by some work that we've done, but by Christ's mercy through or by the means of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when you know you talk to somebody who, again, I use the phrase, has a dehydrated hermeneutic, uh, they immediately want to um, say that, uh-uh, no, 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 You're, it, it's the, the wa- baptism is not regenerating you. Um, and that's not what's going on here at all. This is the, the you've been regenerated first, and then you're baptized. They want to reverse the order of the text and accuse, you know, Luther and other people of heresy and, and wrongly reading the text. So immediately, my question is: Well, how did the earliest Christians read this? Um, is baptism a washing of regeneration? Is that how they understood that, or did they understand that you were regenerated first and then you were baptized? You know, using the dehydrated hermeneutic, if you would. Well, uh, here's another, this is a Greek-speaking um, uh, church father, uh, Theophilus of Antioch. Here's what he writes in his um, letter to Autolycus. Uh, uh, here's what he says. Moreover, those things which were created from the waters were blessed by God, so that this might also be a sign that men would, would at a future time receive repentance and receive the remission of sins through water and the bath, which fits perfectly with the Greek there, Lutron, the bath or the washing of regeneration, all who proceed uh, to the truth and are born again and receive a blessing from God. So here, Theophilus of Antioch, a Greek-speaking uh, church father, is uh, affirming that uh, baptism itself, the waters of baptism, are a bath of regeneration. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, same thing. Uh, in, his, uh, in his Instructor of Children, dated 191 A.D., Clement writes, he says, When we are baptized, we are enlightened. Being enlightened, we are adopted as sons. As sons, adopted as sons, we are made perfect. Made perfect, we become immortal and sons of the Most High God. This work is variously called grace or illumination, perfection, and it's also called washing. It is a washing by which we are cleansed of sins, a gift of grace, that would mean it's God's work, by which the punishments due to our sins are remitted, and illumination by which we behold the holy light of salvation. So there, he clearly is referring to it as a washing of regeneration. Hippolytus, uh, another Greek-speaking church father, date 215 A.D., here's how he understood this text. And the bishop, this is, he's describing a baptismal liturgy, if you would. He's now describing how baptism occurs and what happens immediately after somebody is baptized. Here's what he says. And the bishop shall lay, lay his hand upon them, the newly baptized, invoking and saying, 
O Lord God, who did not count these worthy of deserving the forgiveness of sins by the laver of, uh, of regeneration, make them worthy to be filled with your spirit and send upon them thy grace that they may serve you according to your will. So here, uh, a post-baptismal prayer is that, uh, that you know, th- worthy of deserving the forgiveness of sins by the laver or the washing of regeneration. Right, it's clear there in uh, in Hippolytus, Cyprian of Carthage. Again, we noted the fact that he's a Greek-speaking church father. While I was lying in darkness, this is his letter to Donatus. He says, "While I was lying in darkness, I thought it indeed difficult and hard to believe that the divine mercy was promised for my salvation, so that anyone might be born again and quickened." Unto new life by the laver or the washing of the saving water, he might put off what he had been before, and although the structure of the body remained, he might change himself in soul and mind. But afterwards, when the strain of my past life had been washed away by means of the water of rebirth, a light from above poured itself upon my chastened and now pure heart. Afterwards, through the Spirit, which is breathed from heaven, a second birth made of, uh, made of me a new man." So again, another passage so clear that the ancient Christians understood Titus chapter 3 as baptism itself being a washing and a rebirth and regenerative. This is exactly what they believed. This is exactly what they taught. This is exactly how they argued and exactly what they would hold up against heretics, specifically the Pelagian heretics. Basil the Great in uh, AD 379, he says, For prisoners, baptism is ransom, forgiveness of debts, the death of sin, regeneration of the soul, a resplendent garment, an unbreakable seal, a chariot to heaven, a royal protector, a gift of adoption. Um, What I find fascinating is is that um, you don't have a lot of you know, Reformed Baptists uh, singing the praises of baptism in this way. Um, what do you think? Uh, that's, that's that's a fantastic quote right there. Uh, uh, I think I think one of the one of the important things that will that will come to bear uh, later too is that um, that you that you do have to look at this and make sure that you it's explicit in the text that that it is not a work done by us. Yep. Not, it's not by works, and so uh, no, none of these none of these men uh, thought that this was equated this to a work. That they absolutely saw this text as speaking about baptism, um, and one of the reasons is because it's not isn't a work, and this is one of the reasons that they that they that they see it this way as as a work of God is because it explicitly says that this isn't a work of ours, and you have then the wash every generation. Um, which that you know, but until you know, until recent, you know, recently in the last couple hundred years, uh, nobody would have ever considered that um, the washing of regeneration wasn't referring to baptism. Yep. Uh, it just it it, it wouldn't have been fine. They don't they don't they don't even are they're not made, making arguments against somebody else saying like well this is why this text means this. It's just plain to them in the language as they speak the language. Uh, but that but that's exactly what this is. Yeah. Now, again, here here's the idea. Um, again, the argument from Titus is we're not saved by works; we're saved by Christ's mercy, by or through the washing of regeneration. Can a human being regenerate himself? You cannot. I can't. I yeah, I can't. 
So who's doing the work of regeneration and the washing of regeneration? Answer, God is. It's, it's actually straightforward. So again, the person who claims that somebody who believes, uh, you know, takes these passages literally is somehow creating a work out of baptism isn't paying attention to the text and is actually wrongly um, uh, understanding uh, what somebody who is who you know, believes in this, you know, what this text says that way, that uh, they're, they're accusing them of salvation by works. Not, not, not unless by works you mean God's works, because I can't do any of these things. So, right. You also, you also have this, you know, the, the washing regeneration by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, um, and then whom he, uh, being God, poured right. out on us literally through Jesus Christ. And so you have, you have two words here that I think uh, are important, which is, first of all, which is poured, uh, which, you know, uh, is, it has a, a liquid sense to it, um, but also the, the word through Jesus Christ. And so you have uh, these things don't sound like something that, like, that you could do, that, that it's God who is pouring this out on you, and he's doing it uh, through Christ our Savior, that us being justified by his grace, we're going to become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Um, all of this, then, is done uh, passively, to you, I mean, it, yep. it's He who's pouring it, yep. um, and it's through Christ, our Savior, that that, that this is that we are that we we are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Uh, this is all this is all kind of language that um, kind of prohibits it from being our our deal. But we can't we don't go and, and then do this and then offer it to God. This is something offered to us to uh, bring us into Christ. Yep. Yeah. Again, it's all of God's work and. You know, again, I got to point out the person who says that the one who believes this text this way is a heretic must, by necessity, um, throw out of the church all of these church fathers, all of the most of the of, all of the earliest Christians. They're gone. You know, <laughs> I mean, Ambrose of Milan is gone. Cyprian of Carthage is gone. Irenaeus gone. Um, you know, Barnabas gone. You know, th- th- this doesn't make any sense. I think that the more plausible way of looking at this is that these earliest Christians understood these texts rightly because what all they're doing is literally believing what these texts say. They're not monkeying with the uh, the text at all. They're not engaging in word games or word play. They're just taking the passage at face value. And again, mo- a lot of these guys I'm quoting, Koine Greek was something they spook- spoke fluently. Um, they're taking these words at face value and believing what the word says. And this is this is the equivalent of believing where the scripture says Jesus rose bodily from the grave and and re- and reading it literally and saying Jesus rose bodily from the grave. That means he actually rose bodily. That's what that means. It's it's just on its face, it says exactly what it means. And that's what all of these quotes demonstrate, that these men didn't play word games with these texts. They just took it at face value and understood it literally. Is that a fair way of describing it? Yeah, I think, too, as you see them you know, expound upon the text, you see them explaining what the text says um, as opposed to explaining to you what the text doesn't say. Yeah. And so what, what you'll find uh, in the arguments, you know, and, and uh, later when, when, when you um, you know, the, the arguments made about, about these texts, um, it, it, it's always, here's what the text doesn't say, or here's why it can't, why, uh, what it so clearly seems to say, or if you were just to read this at face value, you might think this, but here's why it doesn't say that. And this is explanation. So it's always explaining 
what it says, right. explaining why it means what it seems to mean. Yep, exactly. Let me read a couple more quotes. Ambrose of Milan, uh, in his work called Of the Holy Spirit, which was written in 381 AD, long before the usurpation of the Bishop of Rome. Here's what he wrote. He says, Who is the one who is born of the Spirit and is made spirit? It is one who is renewed in the spirit of his mind. It is one who is regenerated by water and the Holy Spirit. We receive the hope of eternal life through the laver, through the bath of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And elsewhere, the Apostle Peter says, You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For who is he that is baptized with the Holy Spirit, but he who is born again through water and the Holy Spirit? Therefore, the Lord said of the Holy Spirit, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again by water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And therefore, he declared that we are born of him into the kingdom of God by being born again by water and the Spirit. Now, this is this actually begins to provide a segue not only from from Titus chapter three, uh, talking about the the laver or the bath or the washing of regeneration, but now it starts to get your toe into the waters of uh, uh, the Gospel of John chapter three, where uh, Jesus says, "Born of water and the Spirit." Here's another one. John Chrysostom, 387 A.D., from his baptismal instructions, he says, There came out of his side water and blood, talking about Jesus. Beloved, do not pass this mystery by without a thought, for I have still another mystical explanation to give. I said that there was a symbol of baptism and that the mystery is in that blood and water. It is from both of these that the church is sprung through the bath of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, through baptism and the mysteries. But the symbols of baptism and the mysteries, water and blood, come from the side of Christ. It is from his side, therefore, that Christ formed his church, just as he formed Eve from the side of Adam. Augustine writes from uh, in his work called Forgiveness and the Just Deserts of Sin in the Baptism of Infants, written in 412 A.D. He says, If anyone wonders why children born of the baptized should themselves be baptized, let him attend briefly to this. The sacrament of baptism is most assuredly the sacrament of regeneration. Um, he In his sermons, he talks about the bath of rebirth, the washing of regeneration is mentioned in the city of God. And... Uh, Again, if this is a heretical view, Augustine's a heretic. You know, it's, it's really plain and simple. So the way the church, the earliest Christians understood and taught Titus 3 is that it's teaching the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit in the waters of baptism. It's plain and simple. Again, it's not a simplistic understanding. It is instead just a simple taking the biblical text for what they say. Now, you're thinking, come on, really, Chris, do you think water can... No, I don't believe water can do anything. This is water combined with the Word of God. This is water that does something because God has promised to do something in it. That's the difference. So, um, which then now leads us to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, which I think is fascinating. Because when I was an evangelical, Every time I would read this passage, I would always have questions. Okay, let me read the the verse and then we'll talk about the questions. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay, now when I was an evangelical, I read this and go, whoa, is Jesus saying that I have to, that uh, baptism is saving me? That was my immediate question. 
When I brought this up to my youth pastor, he says, no, 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 that's not what this is saying. And what I was told was that um, being born of water, that's talking about amniotic fluid, okay? That uh, being born of water means to be born of amniotic fluid, and born of the Spirit, well, that just means when you are born again because you've made a decision to follow Jesus. This is what I was told. And so I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. So every time I would get to this passage, you know, the, the questions would always be kind of nagging in the back of my mind, but I would just say, okay, well, born of water means amniotic fluid. Were you told that too, um, Pastor Price? Uh, well, yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the, the standard answer there. Yeah. Now, what I find fascinating is is that um, when I read the writings of the church fathers, none of them, none of them quote this passage in reference to amniotic fluid, but all of them quote this passage in regards to water baptism, and that and they all they all you, you, with unanimous consent say this is water baptism. Okay. Let me give some examples. Irenaeus, again. And Irenaeus has impeccable credentials. And what I mean by that is this. If you understand, you know, kind of his Christian pedigree, uh, Irenaeus learned the Christian faith. He was catechized by Polycarp, the, you know, the Christian martyr, martyr Polycarp, who was the bishop of Ephesus, okay? And Polycarp was catechized and taught the Christian faith by the apostle John, Okay. So Irenaeus is not far removed from the apostles himself, and here's what he writes from a fragment we have of Irenaeus's writing dated to 180 A.D., and, it's, and he's talking about the story from the Old Testament of Naaman the leper, and here's what it says. And Naaman, he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. It was not for nothing that Naaman of old was suffering from leprosy, was purified upon his being baptized, but this served as an indication to us for as we are lepers in sin, we are made clean by means of the sacred water and the invocation of the Lord from our old transgressions being spiritually regenerated as newborn babes, even as the Lord has declared, except a man be born again through water and the spirit, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Irenaeus, who again, impeccable Christian pedigree here, he is saying that Jesus is referring to water baptism. I think that's um, important. Justin Martyr, AD uh, 151, so we're mid-2nd century now. Here's what he writes. He says, As many as are persuaded and believe that we Christians teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live according and instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of sins that are past, we pray and fast with them that they are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves were regenerated. For in the name of God the Father and of our Savior Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit, they then receive the washing with water. For Christ also said, unless you are born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Justin Martyr ties John 3 to baptism, clearly and and unapologetically, from his first apology, which is dated 151. Hippolytus, another Greek-speaking church father, uh, here's what he says in in one of his homilies, uh, dated 217 AD. Perhaps someone will ask, what does it conduce unto piety to be baptized? 
Well, in the first place, that you may do what has seemed good to God. In the next place, being born again by water unto God so that you change your first birth, which was from concupiscence, and are able to attain salvation, which would otherwise be impossible. For thus the prophet has sworn to us, Amen, I, amen, I say to you, unless you are born again with living water into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, fly to the water. For this alone can extinguish the fire. He who will not come to the water still carries around with him the spirit of insanity, for the sake of which he will not come to the living water for his own salvation. Um, The recognitions of Clement, uh, dated 221 AD. But you will perhaps say, what does the baptism of water contribute toward the worship of God? In the first place, because that which has pleased God. Notice this is almost a direct quote from the homilies of uh, Hippolytus. Um, You are regenerated and born again of water and of God. The frailty of your former birth, which you have through men, is cut off, and so you shall be able to attain salvation, but otherwise it is impossible. For thus has the true prophet Jesus testified to us with an oath, Verily, verily, I say to you, unless a man is born again of water, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but the... Um, the testimonies concerning the Jews, 240 A.D., Cyprian of Carthage, 253 A.D., Council of Carthage 7, which was in 256 A.D., uh, uh, Aphraat the uh, Persian, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius of Alexandria, Gregory of Nazianzus, Ambrose of Milan, the Apostolic Constitutions, and Augustine himself all reference the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 5, is not referring to amniotic fluid, but to the waters of baptism. What say you, Pastor Price? Well, I, I think this is a, a really good example of letting of letting clear passages in Scripture um, bear weight on on something that um, may sound a little bit strange at first. So when you read John three, uh, you know, like you said, you, you read it and you have these these questions like, well, well, that just sounds strange. Um, but when you when you look at the other passages, and you know about baptism, and you and you see the the Spirit of God connected there, um, you see like you see. Uh, Receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts two and, and these kind of things, um, this is a this is a, a, a good example of letting uh, clearer passages about something as you read them, and then and then you go back to this passage, and then all of a sudden it is just clear as it could be, and and all of a sudden it makes sense. All, all of a sudden it's not, man, like Jesus just really um, doesn't choose his words very well. Like he's just not <laughs> being very clear. Uh, right. you know, it, it kind of takes that away. And, uh, and says, oh, no, like, I see, I see exactly what this is. Yeah, I, and, you know, the, uh, just a natural reading. And again, all of these church fathers in church councils prior to the usurpation of the Bishop of Rome and the uh, and Mariology and prayers to the saints and all, all before that, okay, these guys are all referencing John chapter 3 as referring clearly to the waters of baptism and are talking about receiving there the remission of sins that in baptism it's a bath of regeneration and uh, and that we're born again in the waters of baptism this is constantly how the uh, the church fathers understood these biblical texts which leads us to the next one colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 and um, here's what the passage says i'm going to read it cold and we'll kind of walk through it um, in him that's in christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Now, there's a lot going on here, but, um, you know, immediately, you know, somebody who, who is opposed to what it is that we're saying, Pastor Price, they would say, oh, this isn't talking about water baptism at all. That's the first thing always out of their mouth. This Colossians 2 isn't about water baptism. Well, I beg to differ because when we look at the writings of the earliest Christians, every single one of them saw this as referring to baptism. And it's important to note what the parallel is that's being done here. In Colossians 2, 11 through 14, it says, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So basically, the idea here is this, is that baptism here is being likened to the Old Testament practice of circumcision, okay? And in this particular case, it's saying that we were circumcised not by human hands, but by Christ himself, and that in our baptism, we are buried with Christ, and we are also raised with Christ, and, you know, and God has put us into Jesus. That's what this text is saying. Now, again, the Lutheran hermeneutic on this, it's not simplistic, but it's simple. And what I mean by that is this. When it says that your heart was circumcised without hands by the circumcision of Christ, it means your heart was circumcised by Christ and not by human hands. That's really what it means. When it says that you were buried with Christ, this is truly what happened to you in your baptism. It's not a symbol of it, but it says that you have been. There's some kind of a real spiritual reality here that you can't see with your eyeballs that truly occurred and happened to you in your baptism, and it was Jesus who was the one who was doing it. So this is another one of those passages that makes it clear that baptism is not our work. Now, now, Pastor Price, I know that you're a very skilled guy, but have you yet figured out how to circumcise a human heart not using hands? Uh, no, no, I haven't. And I think here, I think here, what you see too is that uh, uh, that you have the not done with human hands. Uh, you're, it's, and you have in the reference to baptism, which also uh, kind of takes the the person that's doing the baptism, so the pastor or whoever it is that is actually administering the baptism, um, and saying that like that that's that's not. That, that's not what where the uh, the effective work of baptism comes from. It's not from me or you uh, pouring water on someone or or looking them in a in a river or whatever it is. That that is hands, uh, but that's but that's not the part that saves you. It's it's the circumcision of the heart that's in that that is the part that brings you that that brings you into Christ. That's not, so that's pastor's hands. That's the one performing the baptism hands, and that's the one he uh, baptized his hands off as well. And, and you also see here that, uh, you know, it says being made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Right. Here again, you see the forgiveness of sin. Right. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his hands. These he sets aside or, or removes or washes away. 
Yep. Should you have this forgiveness of sins, this forgiveness of trespasses language, coming up again in reference to baptism? Yep. So, yeah, again, trespass, forgiveness of trespasses and remission of sins, that's two ways of basically saying the same thing. Uh, your sins are remitted. They're forgiven. They're gone. Christ has washed them away. And I, and here's the deal. This works perfectly, perfectly with uh, Acts chapter 2. This works perfectly with Titus chapter 3, uh, these, these, these th- and also uh, uh, John chapter 3. All of these texts work beautifully together. If I read them basically using a literal reading, and I understand that th- this is this, we're not talking about you know, you know some semantic mumbo jumbo in order to get to the real meaning of this. You just read it at face value. What you end up with is that all of these passages, none of them contradict each other. Instead, they all work together and reinforce the same ideas. Uh, rebirth yeah. by the Spirit is the same as regeneration. Uh, forgiveness of sins twice, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, all of this stuff, it, it's all there together. And and just reading what these texts say and believing what they say literally makes it so that baptism now all of a sudden makes sense. And all of these texts don't obliterate each other. They all work together and say the same thing. Yeah, I mean, if you if you read it and, and, you, and you take, a, you know, and you who were dead in your trespasses, so, you, so you're dead in your, your sins, um, God made a lie together with him. Having forgiven us our trespasses, well, I mean, if you who were dead in your trespasses are now made alive, and this is talking about that, if that's not regeneration, well, then I don't know what is. And uh, now you are made alive, um, and you're made alive having uh, part of of being made alive, part of being regenerated is is having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling that record of debt. And so, yeah, you have uh, the regeneration language in here. with, you know, very, very clearly. Yep. Now, so that you understand that the earliest Christians understand understood Colossians chapter 2 as referring to actual baptism, let's take a look at, uh, you know, the uh, passages from the Church Fathers where they use the sa- exact same language and, and pick up these, uh, bib- these biblical images. Justin Martyr, in his dialogue with Justin, of Justin, uh, sorry, the dialogue of Justin with Trifo, who was a Jew, Justin Martyr writes, he says, For since you have read, O Trifo, as of yourself admitted the doctrines taught by our Savior, I do not think that I have done foolishly in adding some short utterances of his, of his to the prophetic statement. Wash, therefore, and be now clean, and put away iniquity from your souls, as God bids you to be washed in this laver, and be circumcised with the true circumcisions. Uh, the command of circumcision again, bidding them always circumcise the children on the eighth day, was a type of the true circumcision by which we are circumcised from deceit and iniquity through him who rose from the dead on the first day after the Sabbath, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is referring then to the true circumcision is the circumcision that comes through baptism, the washing and being clean. Tertullian, on the resurrection of the flesh, written in 211 A.D., writes, The apostle indeed teaches in his epistle to the Colossians that we were once dead alienated and enemies of the Lord in our minds whilst we were living in wicked works that we were then buried with Christ in baptism and also raised again with him through the faith of the operation of God 
who hath raised him from the dead. And you, he adds, when you were dead in sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. Again, if you are dead with Christ from the element of the world, why as though living in the world are you yet subject to ordinances? So Tertullian clearly sees that uh, this passage is dealing with our baptism. Now, this is a hymn from the 4th century, from the uh, Nizabine hymns. Here's what it says. If Zipporah had, has circumcised her son with temporal circumcision and has averted death, will not death with much more reason be banished by our true baptism? And the one baptism into Christ puts on the living one who vivifies the whole world. Ambrose of Milan, two, uh, 388 AD, he writes, This too is plain, that in him who is baptized, the Son of God is crucified. Indeed, our flesh could not eliminate sin unless it were crucified in Christ Jesus. And to the Colossians, he says, Buried with him by baptism, where also you rose again with him. This was written with the intent that we should believe that he is crucified in us, and that our sins may be purged through him, that he who alone can forgive sins may nail to his cross the handwriting which was written against us. Christostom writes in 395 AD, he says, Circumcision no longer performed with a knife, Paul says, but in Christ himself, for no human hand circumcises, but the Spirit. The Spirit circumcises the whole man, not simply a part. When and where? In baptism. <laughs> I mean, it's just so clear. Augustine says the same thing. Uh, uh, Theodore of... Uh, Mapuestia, Severia of Gabala. I mean, the, the, the list goes on and on in, in tying this back to, to physical baptism. And yet the, the argument of those who, I say, have a dehydrated hermeneutic is they want to deny that this is referring to water baptism. And yet the earliest Christians all saw this clearly as referring to baptism and saw that in it are promises that God is going to do something to us, bury with Christ, us, us with Christ, raise us with Christ, circumcise our hearts, forgive our sins, and all of that is attached to water baptism. Am I seeing that correctly? Uh, yeah, I think what what's important to remember is that, that, uh, that a lot of people don't understand the means of grace. And so when they, when they approach this stuff for the first time, they have this uh, problem with God attaching promises to uh, you know, physical things, uh, whether it be baptism or, or the Lord's Supper or whatever it is. Um, but they do openly confess it uh, without knowing that they do it uh, when, they look, when they go back to uh, you know, the, the garden and God says, don't eat this fruit uh, or you will die. You know, that's, a, that's a promise attached to a thing. Yeah. And there's, not, there's, not, there's not power in you know, fruit or you know, seeds and pulp and skin, uh, but sure enough, they eat it, and uh, we've been dying ever since. So God has made good on that promise. And everyone confesses that, but like, no one's going to sit, sit there and say, well, fruit has that kind of power. Likewise... Uh, when we when we talk about you know being brought into Christ or having the remission of sins and these kind of things, um, we should look at it that way that it's, it's a promise attached to a a thing, and so it's not the thing, but it's the the promise. Yep. And sure enough, God makes good on His word. God does not lie, and so when He says, "You eat it the day you eat of this fruit, you will die," well, we that that promise has been made good ever since then. Yeah. Um, and and we should be able to take Him at His word. Likewise, as He says. Uh, you know, through the apostles, through the as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit, this is what baptism does. God, this is what this is what uh, is promised in it. 
Well, then we shouldn't take that and say, well, God has made good on his promises attached to means in the past, uh, but I, I don't believe, you know, in the New Covenant or whatever it is, um, that somehow God has changed uh, and that he no longer would ever dream uh, to, to attach uh, promise of, of remission of sins or being brought into Christ, maybe, that he wouldn't dream of attaching that to, to some physical uh, thing. Yet in the past, God has had no problem attaching his promises to physical things. I would point to two things in particular. Um, you remember the story in, in Numbers where the children of Israel were grumbling against God and he'd had enough and he sent fiery serpents into uh, the uh, the camp of the Israelites that were biting and, and, and envenomating people and they were dying. Uh, very painful deaths according to the biblical text. And so, uh, you know, they confessed that they had done wrong, and they asked Moses to pray to God, and God instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent. Now, the last time I checked, bronze serpents have no medicinal properties, yet God said to Moses to uh, construct a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and that anybody who was bitten by one of these uh, fiery serpents, if they would just look at the serpent, they would be healed. They would not die, but they would live. That's an example of God attaching his word to a physical thing. Um, another example of this, which, by the way, is a great picture of baptismal regeneration, if you really want to see it that way, is the story from Second Kings chapter 5 of Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Let me read the story to you, and let's, let's just ask this question up front. Does the Jordan River possess any properties that make it so that it can heal leprosy? I would answer no. How about you, Pastor Price? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I don't know any. I don't know any lepers that hang along, along the uh, the shores of uh, of the Jordan and are healed all the time by just touching the water of the Jordan. But uh, here we read this story. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, this is Second Kings chapter five, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my lord were, uh, were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now this is kind of an important thing for all you monergists out there. Is Naaman uh, saved? Is he is he somebody who trusts in God? Has he has he been regenerated? Um, you know, at this point, the answer is no. He he is not somebody who believes and trusts in Yahweh. Anything but. He's an idolater at this point in his life. So he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I a god to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So, um, yeah, I mean, the king of Israel at this point thinks that uh, the Syria is trying to pick a fight with him, right? 
So when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? I'm going to pause there for a second. Let's answer Naaman's question. Could Naaman go back to Syria and wash in the Arbana River or the Farpar River and be cleaned and healed of his leprosy? Pastor Price. Uh, no, no, not a chance. That, that, that's, that's, uh, hold on, can you, can you hear me, Chris? Yep, I can hear you. Okay, sorry about that. I, 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 I cut myself off there for a second. <laughs> for some reason, all of a sudden, I, all of a sudden I, I, got, I heard like a beep or something. All right. So the question is, uh, could Naaman, uh, you know, in the story in Second Kings, could he go to the Arbana and Farpar River and be cleansed of his leprosy? Uh, absolutely not. That would be like uh, constructing a, a wood serpent and then going and looking at that. Uh, the, the, that's not, that's not going to get it done for you. Okay. So, uh, so the word of God was where in this story at this point? Where was it, what was it attached to? Attached to the waters that he had prescribed. Yeah, the waters that he had prescribed, and that's the Jordan River. So the uh, Naaman's the answer to Naaman's question is nope. And see, Naaman here, he's upset. He's upset because he thinks this is ridiculous. The Jordan River is a mud puddle compared to the other, you know, to these other rivers he's referencing. He's expecting something grandiose and spectacular to happen, and God has basically said, "Listen, go." To the Jordan, dip yourself seven times, and you will be healed. End of story. The promises of God at this moment in the story are attached to the waters of the Jordan. He couldn't go anywhere else and expect to be healed because God hadn't promised him healing in any other river. So we continue. But Naaman was angry. He went away. Okay, we read that. Um, So we read verse 13. But his servants came near to him and said, My father... It is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, this is the important part, okay? God didn't just heal Naaman's physical body. Naaman comes out of the Jordan River a regenerate believer in the one true God. I think that's a good way of saying it. What do you think, Pastor Price? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, so we read. So then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will not. I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Um, Then Naaman said, If not, then please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any god except for Yahweh. In this manner, may the Lord 
pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. So, sounds, sounds like a regenerate person right there. Yeah, that, and that's quite a confession of faith there. So he goes into the waters of the Jordan, an unbeliever, and he comes up a regenerate penitent believer, even to the point of asking for forgiveness because he has official duties uh, uh, as part of his job that require him to be in the temple of a false god. And he says, as part of the ceremonies that I have to do there, I have to actually have the king on my arm and bow down there to Rimon, but I'm not really doing it. And he's, you could say he's already, it's like, don't worry about it. You're forgiven. Go in peace. So I think we've got an interesting story here. Now, this kind of then leads to the question then, okay? Is baptism, is it is it right to view baptism in a similar way? I think the answer from Scripture is yes, because according to the text that we've read so far, um, baptism, um, it is for the remission of sins. It's for our children. This is what we've read from these passages of Scripture, um, that uh, baptism is a washing of regeneration. It's not a work done by us, and it's a renewal of the Holy Spirit. In the waters of baptism, according to Scripture, we're born of water and the Spirit. Our sins are forgiven. We're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're made alive together with Christ. And God has uh, uh, forgiven us all of our trespasses and canceled the record of debt that stood against us. And all of the earliest Christians read those texts the exact same way. Yeah, I think I, I to me, to me this. I mean, I, I think I know where you're going here. I think we're getting. I think uh, we're we're if you're going to, in light of all of this, of all of these texts, then uh, say something uh, crazy like baptism now saves you. Uh, <laughs> you mean like you mean like First Peter chapter three verse twenty one? I might say something crazy like that. Yeah, if you. The reason that Peter can say something like this is, and the reason that you can read it and believe it is, uh, in light of all of these things, this is all self-vific language. That, yep. that's, I mean, you're talking about forgiveness of sins and regeneration and being brought into Christ and canceling record of wrongs, all these things. Uh, well, then uh, you can then rightly say, well, uh, baptism now saves, but not not as uh, you know, just water. That, but as a of, of the of the goodness and uh, and mercy and grace and uh, blood of Christ, right? To you. Now you cut out there a little bit, but I'm I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm gonna go now. We're gonna we're gonna jump into this First Peter passage, okay? In light of everything we've read from all of these other passages of Scripture, now First Peter starts to make sense because, you know, like I've pointed out. Remission, it's remission of sins, washing of regeneration. It's um, it. Our sins are canceled. We're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. And then we come to this passage in First Peter chapter three. And I'll start at verse eighteen, so we keep the context. For Christ also suffered once for sins 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So here Peter is referencing the flood as a type and shadow, and the reality is actually baptism. Watch this. So because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which now cor- which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you. Now it's important before I read anything else. The Greek on this is real simple. Baptism is the noun, it's in the nominative, and now saves you, that's the verb. The, the, the sentence itself, if you were to compress it, it says, baptism now saves. It, so now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Yeah, because listen, the important thing about baptism is not that the water removes dirt from your skin. That's the way you should read it. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why would it be an appeal to God for a good conscience? Simple, because when you look at all of the other passages, of course it would be an appeal to God for a good conscience, because in the waters of baptism are offered the remission of our sins, regeneration, the canceling of the debts that were put into Christ, that were raised with Christ. So here, again, when we look at how all of these clear passages, what they say, and read them literally, then what happens is, is at the end of this, I don't have to play word games with what Peter says. Of course he would say baptism saves, because when your sins are forgiven and you're regenerated, you're saved, and it's not that he's focusing, you're taking your attention off the fact that in baptism, dirt is taken off your skin, and instead you have an appeal to God for a clean conscience, because in the waters of baptism are offered the remission and forgiveness of of your sins through the resurrection of Christ. That's what he's saying, and I think that's a fair way to uh, read and understand that text. What do you think, Pastor Price? Uh, I think the remo- as the, uh, he talks about not as a removal of dirt from the body. That he's literally they're removing the uh, you know anything that you would think of, of it as being a physical um, act. You know, so like you know, dirt does come off the body as water runs over it. To be sure, uh, it, not baptism. Yeah. Um, water, water itself does not baptism make. And right. Water itself is not a Christian make, but baptism is water combined promise and word of God, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is baptism, and so uh, the remove the, the physical aspects or any physical side effects or any any um, is isn't baptism. It, it it might be something that physically happens in baptism, you might come out cleaner than, you know, physically than you were before. So, yeah, Naaman didn't go uh, down and get in the water to have dirt uh, removed from his skin. That would have been, that would have been a, a big disappointment. He went there for, uh, for something uh, supernatural. Yep. I think that's absolutely right. He was there for something supernatural. Now, by the way, let's take a look at, I'll just read one of the quotes of the Church Fathers because we're kind of waxing along here. And again, I'm going to make this entire document available uh, with this podcast so that you can, again, you know, just 
do the research yourself. Take a look at what these quotes say. The earliest Christians understood what was going on here. Cyprian of Carthage in 253 AD writes, Peter showed and vindicated the unity of the church by commanding and warning that we can be saved only through the baptism of the one church. Just as in that baptism of the world by which the ancient iniquity was purged, the one who was not in the ark could not be saved through water. So now anyone who has not been baptized in the church cannot be saved, for the church has been founded in the unity of the Lord as the sacrament of the one ark. So now I'm not going to get into the finer points of Cyprian's argument here, but he clearly sees that Peter is talking about baptism saving. This is what the earliest Christians understood, and it's not a huge leap at this point to uh, to basically say First Peter chapter three is talking about water baptism because the early church understood that to be the case, and it works perfectly then with all of these other passages that clearly say all these salvific things regarding baptism. I don't think it's any kind of a stretch at all. Now, there's more passages that we can talk about, but I think all of those present really the clearest passages on this topic. And um, it, it, again. You know, my request for you, the listeners of Fighting for the Faith, is open up your Bible and take a look at what's going on. Read this document and read how the early Christians understood these texts. And ask yourself, um, if somebody believes what we've put out here, are they really a heretic or are they rightly understanding what the Scriptures teach? And if you don't think they're rightly understanding what the Scriptures teach, then why all of these? Why do all of these ancient Christians, these first, you know, earliest Christians all say the same thing, and the way they read these biblical texts is they read them literally. I think that's you know kind of the question that you know I would put out there for those who have a dehydrated hermeneutic. Uh, anything you want to add to that, Pastor uh, uh, Pastor Price? Well, I think I think uh, I think that that, that that covers it. Okay. Uh, I think that you know, like, like we said, we you know you said at the beginning is um, one of the things that's important to remember is that all these. You know, all these quotes are, you know, a lot of times when you, when you talk about the early church fathers, um, someone who hasn't um, necessarily done, done the research and hasn't, hasn't read a lot will just automatically assume, like, well, oh, well, those, those are Catholics, you know. And so it's, it's important to remember, you know, and, and they, when they say Catholics, they don't mean little c Catholics, they mean uh, Roman Catholics. And, uh, and it's important to remember that that's not the case. So, like, all, all of the, um, all of the, 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 the additions and and the, the that the Roman Catholic Church has added and all the um, ab, abnormal practices that had come in hadn't come in yet and so this is when you say early church fathers you're not necessarily talking about you know some pope somewhere or something right. like that right um, and then also that um, that these they're they're you build the arguments uh, one passage on top of another, and, and you let and you let these uh, passages say what they say, and and that these people and 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 us, as we explain these passages, is to explain what they say, not try to explain them away or explain why they can't mean that. But if you stack them all up, it, it becomes very clear yeah. what's being said here. Right, and it's and it's patently clear that the earliest Christians understood these as baptismal texts, and these passages governed their understanding and their doctrine. Uh, when it came to baptism, this is what you know what fenced them in, and they were very careful to say the same thing as these texts say when they wrote about what baptism is, what it does, who it's for. They had all of these texts in mind, and they say the same thing as these texts do when you just take it off of a literal 
meaning uh, that the, these texts literally mean what they say, and you don't have to actually engage in any kind of semantic monkey business to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to get what these texts mean. So again, this is a simple hermeneutic, not simplistic, and this is exactly how the church fathers uh, took these texts. Now, what yeah, I and, and, it's, and it's a matter of like, do you, you know, as as you as you look at this, even if you disagree with it. Uh, when you start tossing around, you know, words, words like heresy and things like that, um, you know, a question you need to ask yourself is: Do you have the brass to um, to damn uh, the larger majority of of uh, the historical Christian faith? Right. Uh, do you, have, you, do you are you willing to do that? Right. And I think this is where the Lutheran Reformation was very careful. And uh, and what I mean by that is this: is that you know the Lutherans, unlike some of the radical reformers. Um, they basically would take a look at something and say, okay, let's take a look at what Scripture says, let's take a look at how the, the ancient church understood these texts, and we're, we're going to take great pains to not be innovative. In fact, that's kind of the, uh, the rallying cry of the Lutheran Reformation, was to not innovate. And they painstakingly, uh, you know, if you look at, the, if you, when you read the uh, Book of Concord, uh, the Lutherans painstakingly took great pains to make sure that everything that they were believing, teaching, and confessing, and what they were rejecting was because they were believing and teaching and confessing what the Scriptures say and what the Church historically has always believed and taught. And they took very great pains to make sure that uh, even when it came to the Gospel, when they go back into the writing of the Church Fathers, were they rightly understanding what the Church Fathers, uh, you know, were the Church Fathers saying the same thing as them when it even came to the Gospel? And they found that, yes, the Church Fathers were. And so the idea here is not to have any innovations, but to believe, teach, and confess what Scripture says and not play monkey business with the, uh, the biblical text, which they accuse many different groups of doing, including uh, Roman Catholics and, and others. So I think, that's, I think that's a good way of approaching this in that way. So now, all of this, by the way, uh, we don't have, you know, we're not going to go into super depth here, but all of this was predicated, and one of the reasons why uh, we're doing this program today is because a uh, a uh, reformed baptist pastor in uh in San Antonio, Texas. His name is uh, Matt Haney. Uh he, uh he of Grace Community Church in uh, San Antonio, Texas. He recently delivered a sermon and people posted links to it on my Facebook wall and other places where this guy literally says that I'm not a Christian. That people who believe what we just laid out regarding baptism are not Christians. That Luther is a heretic. And um, and so you know, I wanted to take the time to not do a full sermon review of, of Pastor Haney's sermon uh, because really he spends an inordinate amount of time going after Luther, and um, yeah, which is, is actually kind of silly um, because uh, Luther isn't one of the apostles, and Luther didn't teach anything differently than what you know what we showed you from uh, both Scripture and how the Church Fathers understood those passages. And so what I want to do is I want to let, let you hear his some of his arguments, and I want to take a look at some of the things that he does with the biblical text, and uh, we'll uh, you know kind of critique his hermeneutic along the way. So this will be selective passages from his sermon. But I'm going to start off with the first four and a half minutes of his sermon uh, with Pastor Price here on the line so that you can kind of get a, f- a flavor for this sermon that uh, that was delivered by Pastor Haney and uh, why it then led to uh, me feeling that I, I needed to at least 
put a program out there responding to some of the charges that uh, uh, that he made. So uh, without any further ado, here's uh, the beginning of this sermon about baptismal re- regeneration by Matt Haney. Here we go. Preach here as we've been going expositorily, verse by verse, through the Gospel of John and but I have a special burden today that I want to depart uh, from the Gospel of John, and I want to address the issue of baptismal regeneration. Now, what, what does that mean? Some of you, that may just sound foreign to you. simply means this, that the very act of water baptism, this is a false teaching that says, The very act of water baptism regenerates the soul. You take a child, an infant, a baby, and you put it in that water, and you baptize it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they teach that that child is now born again, regenerated, has new life. It's a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's saved. This baptismal regeneration teaches that baptism saves that baptism forgives sins. And it changes that Christ is not received by faith alone. Christ is received by faith plus baptism. Now, why would I, why would I speak on this? Who believes in this doctrine of baptismal regeneration? Many of you may be shocked to find out that some of the men that you quote from the past... And think of as great sound theologians actually taught this false heresy, this false gospel. But who believes this today? We'll get to some of those later. The Catholic Church believes this. The Orthodox Christians, Anglicans, Episcopals, even Mormons. The Reformed Church in America and the Lutheran Church teaches and believes this. And there is now a a federal... Visionist movement that is teaching this as well, and that even includes some Presbyterians. Now, Presbyterians normally would utterly reject this heresy, even though they do baptize infants, but they do not believe it produces regeneration. Now, what about some of these other groups? There's other groups out there that they believe baptism saves, but they don't believe it regenerates. They just believe it saves. And here's a list of those. The Church of Christ. And there's a whole bunch of different ones that makes of those. They have all kinds of different names. They've all they split into different branches. But the Church of Christ, the Restoration Movement, Seventh-day Adventist, and some Oneness Pentecostals. You say, well, okay, think about this. If you have a burden for anyone in those groups, if you want to share the gospel with them, you're going to have to understand this doctrine of baptismal regeneration. You're going to have to defend that the Scripture does not teach this. But some of you are even friends on Facebook with teachers who are actively promoting baptismal regeneration. If any of you are friends with the pirate Christian radio, what they do is they take a lot of the silly teachings like Joel Olstein and others, and they mock them and show how they're unbiblical. But what you probably don't know is that man is an active teacher, a promoter, He's a Lutheran, and he teaches baptismal regeneration. If you listen to the White Horse Inn, a lot of Reformed Baptists listen to the White Horse Inn radio program. Michael Horton, 
who teaches that, who has many popular books among Reformed Baptists. He actively believes and teaches in baptismal regeneration. Why are we fellowshipping with people who deny the gospel? The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Some of you may have went to their conferences. They include in their denominations Anglicans, Anglicans excuse me, and Lutherans. Because it was started, the president of that organization was Michael Horton for three years. What about this? A lot of people, I see people posting all the time on Facebook about they're so glad the gospel's going out through this TV show called Duck Dynasty. Those men are Church of Christ. They believe baptism saves. They're not Christians. Okay? And people keep treating them as though they're Christians, but you need to understand that they believe baptism saves, not Christ alone. Okay, going to pause right there and just comment on this. So, I'm a heretic. The Duck Dynasty guys are heretics. Luther's a heretic. Michael Horton's a heretic. All of every Anglican is a heretic. Um, I mean, just, at, I mean, serious. At, you know, all of the church fathers we've said, they're all heretics now. And, um, you know, all because he claims that bat, this, this teaching uh, that we just laid out from Scripture is heretical. It's quite a claim. What do you think, Pastor Price? Yeah, it also he also does it without without uh, really showing the differences in, in like in some of these groups. Um, you know, you can there's different there's different forms of, re- of baptismal regeneration out there, um, and so a, a Lutheran's view, which would be baptismal regeneration uh, via the means of grace, uh, is is not necessarily the same as uh, the Church of Christ view or or a Seventh Day Adventist view. Uh, uh, definitely just, not the same uh, as a Mormon view. You know, the Mormon view, yes. Uh, but he makes this this huge, this, this takes this bucket and dumps them all in it. Yeah. Um, uh, which is which is um, well, it's 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 either not doing your homework or or it's uh, or or it's just uh, being a, a little bit dishonest uh, as well. Right. Yeah. And I I want to make something clear. I don't think uh, Matt Haney is a heretic. I don't consider him not to be a brother. Um, but he's dead wrong when he says that we've create you know that we believe in salvation by grace plus the work of baptism. That's absolutely patently false. Um, I couldn't you know I couldn't do the work of baptism if I tried because all of the promises associated with baptism only is God is the one who could accomplish them. Baptism is something that is done to me as we've explained all this, and so he's he's he doesn't even take the time to rightly uh, understand what what it is that Lutherans believe on this. And uh, and when he rightly says it, he just, you know, disparages it and, uh, and then engages in a hermeneutic of basically walking through all of the clear passages regarding baptism in, in order to say they don't say, they don't mean what they say. It's it's no, it doesn't mean that. Don't think that it means that. It's uh, he's going to basically walk through and just obliterate every single passage and evacuate it of what it says, um, and then and then he's actually very sneakily uh, includes things that um, you know that are not in the text. I, I'm going to give you an example, and uh, I, again, we're not going to spend time walking through what he does, you know, how he quotes Luther because. 
Luther is not the issue. The question is, what does the scripture say? And so I want to take a look at how Matt Haney handles, for instance, Acts chapter 2. Let's uh, take a listen to what he does with uh, Acts chapter 2. Here we uh, go. Right Back then, you go to the the book of Acts, you see Peter preaches, 3,000 souls get saved. Immediately they're baptized. You say, man, 3,000. That's how serious... Uh, they took baptism was as soon as you believe, you get baptized. Why? You're going to profess that you're a believer of Jesus Christ. You need to stand up publicly before all these people who are rejecting Him. And you need to stand up and identify yourself with Jesus Christ now. Now, I'm going to back that up. I want you to hear it again. Because the, the text from Acts chapter 2, which we read earlier, Peter says, "...repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins." Matt Haney here in his explanation, he asks why people need to be baptized. And his answer was because people need to stand up in front of all of these unbelievers and identify themselves with Jesus. Uh, Pastor Price, does the text say that the reason why the people got baptized that day was so that they can stand up in front of all these unbelievers and identify themselves with Jesus? Does the text say that? No, no, it doesn't. In fact, I don't even know where he's getting this, like, massive amounts of unbelievers from the text. I mean, I mean, he, Peter preaches this sermon, and then and then it's almost like the, the 3,000 people uh, being converted. Uh, you know, this, this is not, uh, like, you know, one guy, uh, you know, becoming a Christian and then, you know, standing up in front of a ton of people and doing this. This is, this is uh, bringing something to the text, which is, which is your theology, this is your, your presupposition that baptism is your first act of obedience, or it's a profession of faith, or it's an outward act of an inward change, or all this kind of language that's nowhere in, nowhere in Scripture, and saying, well, of course, that's what this is, but he doesn't uh, build that definition from Scripture before he makes it. No, in, in fact, not at all. In fact, he's, this is in, in what hermeneutically we call eisegesis. Eisegesis means to read something into the biblical text that's not there. The text says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's the reason why they need to be baptized. According to Matt Haney, the reason why they need to be baptized is so that they can stand up in front of unbelievers and be identified with Jesus. Listen again. This is eisegesis. He's literally inserting something into the text that isn't there. Listen again. Right Back then... You go to the the book of Acts, you see Peter preaches, 3,000 souls get saved. Immediately they're baptized. You say, man, 3,000. That's how serious uh, they took baptism was as soon as you believe, you get baptized. Why? You're going to profess that you're a believer of Jesus Christ. You need to stand up publicly before all these people who are rejecting Him. And you need to stand up and identify yourself with Jesus Christ now. All right. So that's his explanation. Why did they get baptized again? You heard it from his own mouth. He literally inserted that into the biblical text, and the text doesn't say that at all. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that as soon as you profess Jesus Christ, you have to stand up in front of unbelievers and profess your faith in Jesus Christ and identify with him. There's no text that says that. I don't know any of them. I I would would say that there's there's a a lot of texts that... uh, which seem to 
refute that idea that you need to stand up in front of unbelievers, and that's what baptism is, is this public profession, because you see all kinds of uh, instances where baptism is done uh, alone. You know, Philip and the Ethiopian unit, you don't, you don't see them, like, gathering about, you know, let's, let's go gather up some unbelievers so you can make a public profession here. Or, you know, the jailer, you know, is you know, baptized in the middle of the night. You know, you don't, you don't, well, let's make sure that we go get uh, some unbelievers here so you can make this profession. I mean, you just don't see this kind of language anywhere. No, not, like nowhere at all. So he, 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 well, quite unwittingly engaged in a hermeneutical no-no, and that is, is he literally stuck something into the biblical text that's not there. He's not getting this via exegesis. He put that in there via eisegesis. So there's no biblical text that says that. Plus, it doesn't make any sense, okay? Um, I never understood the idea that that baptism is something I do to show the world that I made a decision to follow Jesus or want to be identified with Jesus. Because every church I go to, the world isn't there on Sunday morning. Uh, The world is sleeping in or playing golf or watching football. Um, The only people who show up to church for baptism baptisms are christians so i mean it does i mean even this theology doesn't make any sense it's to show the world you know that you've made a decision to identify yourself with jesus well the world doesn't show up for baptisms that, that i mean on its face it's a, actually an absurd thing and there's no biblical text that says it all right we're gonna <clears throat> move to the next one so i mean i, I kind of wanted you to see what he does with this text. Now, we're going to hop around a little bit here. We're going to jump to and listen to what he does with Titus chapter 3. Now, we read the text. talks about we're not saved by any works that we've done, but by but God saves us by or through washing of regeneration. So listen to this hermeneutic and understand. We've already quoted all the, uh, the earliest church fathers who understood this is ex- talking exactly, means exactly what it says. Here's what he does with that text. Now, he goes on and is, we're going to look at some scripture here, but he goes on and he brings up Titus in the small catechism. The next verse he goes to is Titus 3. Let me show you how he gets there. Thirdly, baptism is a gracious water of life and a washing of regeneration. You've heard that phrase before, right? A washing of regeneration in the Holy Ghost, as St. Paul says. Now, let me give you the verse he's bringing that out from. How would you, if you're someone that's evangelistic in our church, you run into someone who believes in it, how would you defend this verse? Titus 3.5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now they claim here, see, the washing, that's just another way to describe baptism. By the baptism of regeneration. That's what they would say is being taught here. But notice what Luther does here. He makes the text say the exact opposite of what it actually says. Look at this. It does not say the regeneration of washing, but the washing of regeneration. This text is saying that regeneration does a washing. It's not saying the washing produces regeneration, right? Now, this is kind of silly. The reason why is because the Greek here is actually very clear. It says he 
saved us by the washing or the bath of regeneration. And so the idea here is, is that regeneration, which, by the way, this is the only time that the word regeneration occurs in the entire New Testament. It says that he saves us by the means of this bath or this washing of regeneration. The, even the word lutron itself means bath, washing. It, do, it, it means baptism. That's another way of, of looking at it and for ceremonial use. I mean, the, it's describing, it's, it, this, the word itself is describing an action. That's exactly what's going on here. So this is a washing of regeneration, but what he wants to do is take away the washing that somehow oh no no the the regeneration created the bath or it's absolutely bizarre what he's doing here and we have all of the church fathers including the greek-speaking ones who constantly refer to this in their writings as pointing us to the waters of baptism so he's trying to find a way to explain away what this text says so that he can accuse the lutherans and others of being heretics for believing what this text actually says it's a fascinating game he's employing here we continue though just look at the next phrase and renewal of the holy spirit does the holy spirit do the renewal or does the renewal somehow bring about the Holy Spirit? You see, he's twisting the language. He, and this is common among Lutherans and those who believe in baptismal regeneration. You bring up any text, and if they hear the word water, cleanse, purify, anything like that. Oh, baptism. That's baptism. You have to prove that in the text. And that's not what it means here. Um, did he make his case there, uh, Pastor Price? Uh-huh. I think it's I think it's interesting that he, that he takes <laughs> he takes the the renewal of the Holy Spirit part and uh, and 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 says like oh see like this is the renewal not, not like just as as if he's oblivious to the to the Acts two passage which he's already addressed which says you know be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift the gift of the Holy Spirit and it takes no twisting to put those two together uh, but he, he absolutely takes this to say like well. It's the renewal of the Holy Spirit that does it, so therefore it's not the washing that does it. Um, and and what, you, what you end up doing here is that when you take, when you think baptism is your work to God instead of God's work to you, it, which no says, it's in, you start off and you just keep working with it, and it's, it's impossible to get it right, and you just end up doing something crazy, and it's just ironic that, that he's, 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 you know, he's, He's playing word games with the text. He's accusing the elite from the catechism of of, uh, of manipulating the text. Right. When he is clearly manipulating the text, where, where it's it's like no, this, this is what it, just what it says at face value. Um, but because you started off on the wrong foot, because you started off with this assertion that you made earlier that baptism is your profession of faith before the world, or or whatever it is that it's your first act of obedience, or however you want to describe it. Right. As you start off on that foot, you just keep running in that direction, and then you come to this text, and you can't, you, it's impossible to get it right. Um, coming in with that presupposition. Right, and his presupposition that, you know, that the reason why you're baptized is to stand up in front of all the unbelievers 
um, in order to identify with Jesus in front of them as assigned to them. That that's that again, he inserted that in the text. But you're right. Once you start with that presupposition, you come to this text. You cannot understand it because this text doesn't say any of that, and it contradicts what you're saying about baptism. So either one thing, ha- one thing or another has to go. Either your false presupposition has to go, which, by the way, it is not taught in Scripture anywhere that you know, the baptism is assigned to unbelievers that you've identified with Jesus. That's not taught in any of the clear passages. Or that, that either that has to go, or a right understanding of Titus three has to go, and so he's chosen to get rid of what Titus chapter three really says and how the how the earliest Christians understood that text. He's he's completely obliterated that, and he's anathematized every Christian who believes what that text says, contrary to his assertion that baptism is something you do to show the world that you've identified with Jesus. Fascinating technique. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it, it's it's a matter of this. It, this is how this is how this is done most often. Um, is that uh, before before you go to the text, uh, if, you're, if you're talking about baptism, you will present a definition of baptism, um, not from a scriptural text. You'll just present a definition of baptism as if it is common knowledge to all Christians. Well, we know that baptism is your outward profession of faith. Right. And, and then you, you, you build that, and so you make that statement, and then you go to these texts, and what you're basically doing is saying, in light of the definition that we have put forth, we must then explain this text away. Right. We must make this text submit. We must make it submit to the definition that we've built, but we have not built this definition in Scripture. Right. We've just, we've just presented it at the outset. Yep, that's exactly right. Now, what's fascinating What is what he does with Acts chapter 2, verse 38, then. Now, we've already shown you that from the Acts chapter 2 text, that what he does is he says that he says the reason he asks the question why are they being baptized these three thousand people so that they can publicly identify with Jesus in front of all these people who are refusing to believe okay that's the reason why he gave so then you get to the text that says that baptism is for the remission of sins and it's interesting the word games that he engages in in order to explain away what the text says and what the earliest Christians. It meant, understood that text as saying, listen in. Now, what about another verse? I'm sure all of you, if you evangelize, you, you've come up against this verse. Acts 2.38. How do you defend against Acts 2.38? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How do you rebuttal that? Let's look at the context. Don't forget the context. Peter has just preached the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus to this crowd. And the crowd says this. They indicate their believing by saying this. Brothers, what should we do? You don't say that if you're not believing. They've been pierced to the heart. What should we do? We need to be saved. Now notice, the first word that Peter tells them, repent. If you're telling me that that text is teaching baptismal regeneration, that baptism saves, you show me how that infant repents when you put it in the water. 
You've got to have repentance first. That's the first thing that everyone ever overlooks in this text. There's got to be repentance. Okay, now I'm going to pause right there, and, and let's make something very patently clear here. There's the work that he's adding to salvation, okay? A baby can't repent according to him. A baby can't repent, and therefore repentance is the work, the thing that you've got to do. The way I'm hearing this is that his salvation is not by grace alone through faith alone. His salvation is by his repenting. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, I, I, not only that, but what, what you've done. I mean, I mean, like you, you've said, uh, you say a baby can't repent, and at the same time, he makes obviously repentance of uh, like mandatory here for salvation. Then, uh, which I mean, I would agree that the, the, the you know uh, those who believe repent. But when you say then like show me how a baby can repent, and then you what you've done is you've damned every infant that has ever died to hell. I mean, that's what you've done. Yep. You can't if you if you say that a, a child, uh, an infant, uh, that God can and repentance is a gift. I think that's the other thing we have to make clear. Repentance is not based on your mental faculties. Uh, the it's not based on uh, intellectual level of repenting. Uh, repentance is a gift, like faith, that's given by God. Right. Uh, and you and there's no and there's no prohibitions or qualifications to who he can give this gift to. And when you say, you show me how a baby can repent, uh, what you've done then is saying that, like, well, apparently, uh, if this repentance and this and this having to, to be able to see it and visualize it um, as, a, as a, an a outward thing, uh, what you've done then is say that, like, well, all these infants then that, that, that die, um, well, they, they can't be saved. Uh, they can't be. And because you don't have infant baptism again, then, then you end up with the age of accountability because no one wants to confess that. Right. Now, I want to I back up what you said, that repentance itself is given as a gift. This is absolutely true. Let me, let me back this up with a biblical passage so that people don't think that we're just inventing this, uh, this idea. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'll start at verse 22. Listen to what it says. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here, even the, uh, the Apostle Paul understands that God is the one that grants people repentance. And this is exactly the kind of picture that Jesus paints of repentance in Luke chapter 15. I'll give you two quick parables from Jesus. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having lost, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost uh, my sheep that was lost so i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance in other words jesus's picture of repentance is that the shepherd goes and finds the wayward sheep picks him up and brings him back that's what repentance looks like 
and another parable. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels over God, over one sinner who repents. So this is Jesus's picture of repentance, right? So, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, re- repentance is it, it is an imperative thing that 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 um, you know that, that we're told to do. But also, uh, it's, it's important to note that uh, the dead men don't obey imperatives. Yeah, and so like this is something that must be given. Much like you know, hey, believe is, is something we must do, but it's not something that we we can do uh, apart from the, the gift of God. Right, and the statement that he made: infants can't repent. That's not taught anywhere in Scripture. The Scriptures say nothing of the sort. Um, Coins can't repent. Uh, Coins are lifeless things, and yet Jesus uses a coin to demonstrate what repentance is. And repentance is not the coin rolling itself back into the good graces of the woman who lost it, but repentance is the woman finding her coin. That's what repentance looks like. So, uh, you know, but you're right. With this thing he's saying, he ends up damning every single infant in offering them no hope of salvation whatsoever until they hit the age of the invisible age of accountability. And yet none of the ancient church fathers argued this way. And I come back to the fact that against the Pelagian heresy, the, the, the church, the, you know, the, the bishops of the church at the time at the council of Carthage put up infant baptism as the proof that the, the, uh, uh, Pelagians were heretics. I think that's an important note. We continue though. Turning away from sin. Now look at this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. What does that word for mean? Well, that word for, it can mean for, like like they're taking it to mean, but it can also mean this, because. It can mean because. And let me show you this in a very parallel text. A valid way to read this text is this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of the forgiveness of your sins. Now, he's engaging in word games. I mean, just flat out engaging in word games. If the reason why it says for the forgiveness of sins is because it's supposed to mean because of the forgiveness of sins, then how come none of the ancient church fathers, the earliest Christians, understood that text that way, especially the Greek-speaking ones? How come? I mean, I think that's a fair question to ask. What do you think, Pastor Price? Yeah, yeah. not only do they not not look at it uh, as because of, and, and, and it's just a weird thing that you could just go around in the Scriptures and, and, and pull out the word for and insert because there is, is, is just ludicrous. But also... It's interesting that if you can take the word for there and translate it as because, I find it very odd that no literal translation of the Bible to date, despite even some of the theological leanings of the translators at times, there's, there's, there are scholars who have been on, you know, that have, that have helped translate uh, and translate new translations of the Bible um, that have held this, this position, and yet none of them in the literal translations ever translate this because or in light of or anything like that. It's always for. Yep. If, they could, if they could insert because, or, or they would, because, it's, I mean, like I said, in many cases, they have this, this view. Right. But, uh, 
but but an honest interpretation demands that they put the word for in there, and so that's what they do. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly right. An honest interpretation requires them to put in the word for. And again, this let me read uh, the the earliest extant. Uh, writings that are not apostolic but come from you know the, uh, the church fathers. Barnabas, again, regarding baptism, this is written in 74 AD. Regarding baptism, we have the evidence of Scripture that Israel would refuse to accept the washing which confers the remission of sins. Barnabas, in his epistle, um, discuss, basically he picks up the language of Acts chapter 2 and says that baptism for the forgiveness of sins means that baptism confers the forgiveness of sins. The shepherd of Hermas, uh, written in 80 AD, I have heard, sir, said I to the shepherd from some teacher, that there is no other repentance except that which took place when we went down into the water and obtained the remission of sins of our uh, remission of our former sins. He said to me, "You have heard rightly, for it is so." We've already been through all of these passages, but I just would point people back to it. None of the earliest Christians understood Acts chapter 2 as saying, repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins. Pastor Haney is engaging in flat-out word games in order to evacuate the text of what it actually says. This is not a good biblical hermeneutic. This is the exact opposite of hermeneutics. This is destroying and twisting of God's word. Let's continue. I, I, Go ahead. I, I, I wonder uh, also, you know, in the same book, the same author, um, if you go to Acts 22, 16, when Paul is recounting his conversion, you know, and, and, uh, and it says, you know, why, why, you know, and why do you now wait, rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling yep. on his name? Yep. You, you, don't, you don't see a, why do you wait, rise and be baptized, because of the forgiveness of sins? Or uh, Here you don't see, your baptism is again spoken of, as washing away sins, not not because not because, but actually doing it. Yep. Rising and baptized and wash away your sins. Yep. If you take these two texts together, um, I think that you eliminate that definition of the word for for being because because this this other text that speaks of the exact same language. Yep. Um, doesn't doesn't say doesn't even have that word there. I mean, like, literally says, like, and wash away your sins. It talks about it actually doing this. Yep, yep. It's, it, it's absolutely mind-boggling that somebody can believe that they're being honest with the biblical text engaging in these kinds of word games. It doesn't make any sense. And, like I said, we have the witness of the earliest Christians and how they've handled these texts as proof that you, you're supposed... These texts were meant to be read literally, not... You know, figuratively, but literally. That's exactly what's going on here. So uh, let's continue with uh, what he does with this text here. So this verse in Acts 2.38, when you have a Greek word that can mean two different things, you've got to look at the context and you've got to compare how that word is used in other places. And we see it's a completely valid interpretation to see it that way. So he says it's a completely valid interpretation is to read it as because... Yet nobody translated nobody translated as because none of the early church fathers understood it as because, but it's a valid it's a valid way to read it, and you're a heretic if you disagree with him. You know, unbelievable. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, it's it's a, he you know he says like well you have a word that can mean two things. Uh, you have, you know context uh, you know determines uh, what it is. 
Uh, I would also add to that and say also the way that the same thing is described in other portions of Scripture yep. um, is rather useful, and you should probably uh, engage in that as well. Right. Uh, and like we said, you know, going to Acts 22, um, it's like, well, if this word can mean two things, which I think is ludicrous that, that it's a thing, but even if you're going to grant that, then go to another passage where it talks about your sins being washed away in baptism and uh, see if that kind of language is used there. Um, if the because language is used there, and if it's not, well, then you have your answer. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's listen to what he does with the for your children part. We basically read that text and say, you know, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin, for the promises for you and for your children. We understand that as, uh, as meaning, well, that means that it's for your children. <laughs> the ancient church understood <laughs> that as, well, it means for your children. That means that children are included, and children can be forgiven and washed and redeemed by Christ. Plain and simple. Jesus isn't saying, don't... He, what did he say? Don't hinder the children from coming to me? This guy wants wants to hinder the children from coming to Christ. But listen in. Now, let's, let's continue looking at this. Verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Now, a lot of people take this verse and say, see, it's for the children. This means you get saved, you can baptize your children too. That's not what it's saying. He says, and for all who are far off, right? Now, you don't take that and say, well, I can just baptize anyone. I know Luther took that view. But that's not what he's communicating here. He says, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. How do you know God's called someone to himself? You repent and believe. This promise is for all, everyone who's far off, who will God will call to himself. You, the way that's observed it's they repent and they believe. Uh-huh. So there he goes. He just finds a clever way to just make it so that, nope, it doesn't include your children. <laughs> Don't think it does. He just jumps over the word child. I mean, he, he, he makes reference to it and then just jumps over to the next part. I mean, at, at the very least, I mean, if he wants to say that this is for uh, your children, at, at the very least we have here is saying, like, well, let's see. Who is this promise of, of forgiveness of sins? Uh, who is it for? Well, it's it's for you. It's for Gentiles all over. Yeah. Uh, oh, and it's for children. It's for I mean, children are mentioned. I mean, so like, it, it is in fact for children. I also don't see him engaging in any nonsense, like uh, saying like, well, let's look at these other two these other two words for here. You know, the promise is because of you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and your yeah. children. Yeah. So yeah. That happening. Yeah. So he should translate that. It's it and the promise is for you because of your children. You know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. No. It's. I mean, in this, he's. I mean, I feel like I'm watching a game of Twister. You know. You, you know that game where you you know you spin the dial and you, you put your right hand on on the green circle and then says put your left leg on a red dot. You know. I feel like I'm watching Twister. I mean, it's unbelievable the the ways in which he will contort himself in order to not say what the text says. Now, this if, I, if, I, if I had heard this sermon and I, then I was I, and I was coming back and, and reading any of these passages in my you know daily Bible reading or whatever, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. It's so twisted up that I would come to it and I would be like, oh man, uh, what was it he said about that again? Right. Because you, you know, what I mean? like that's how you would have to. Like, like, you better be taking notes on this because in your margins of your Bible as he's saying these things, because there's just no way that you're going to come back to this text. A year later, and be like, "Oh yeah, it's so clear to me now what this means." I mean, no way. You're all twisted up and mangled here. Yeah. Uh, you, you, it's it's just a, 
absurd way to read scripture. Right. And, and here's another thing that I think is important. Jesus said, go, uh, go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing, teaching, um, you know, everything that I've commanded. Right now, this I know this is going to seem like a silly argument, but um, when we take a census here in the United States, um, does you know, when the census guy comes to your door, does he ask you? how many infants and children you have in the household to be counted as part of the census of the United States? The answer is yes, he does. Um, no, in the United States, a newborn child is considered a full citizen of the United States and has the full protection and rights of a citizen of the United States and is counted as part of the census, as part of the census. Jesus, when he says, go make disciples of all nations, that word nations includes everybody who's a part of that nation. And it is not exclusive that says, oh no, go make disciples only of the adults and people of the age of account at the age of accountability in those nations. That's ridiculous. Yeah. What, what you what you do is, uh, uh, the thing I've always, I always ask for, uh, because, you know, they'll say, they'll make these arguments that there's no, there's no, you know, explicit text that says that this infant was baptized or this child was baptized. Um, uh, while they ignore the, the obvious uh, definition of the word household and family um, in Scripture and children in this play in this case, um, but they ignore that. But I would also ask then, like, for the same argument to be made, I would say, well, well, we do have a commission to baptize all nations. We do have we we see that baptism is is for all those who are far off and and all these kind of things. Uh, but I don't. Where is the prohibition? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's no there's no uh, prohibition on age or race or gender or anything like that right. on baptism, and so I, I would I would ask then if it was like so uh, so detrimental and so horrible then to apply baptism to children to apply the promises of God to children, why then is there is Scripture silent on? Well, here's who shall not be baptized. You find no text like that. None. You, instead, you see these kind of all-inclusive texts of baptizing nations and all who are far off and mm-hmm. households and families and, and children and all, and all this. Uh, and with all this language, you would think that, like, what the apostles would say, like, wow, with all this language of, of just how, how broad we've talked about baptism, perhaps I should insert this prohibition, because all it would take is one. All it takes is the apostle Paul saying, now, obviously, we don't baptize children under the age of blank, or obviously, right. we don't baptize infants. Right. Uh, but no, no such prohibition exists. None. None whatsoever. And what I also find fascinating, and you pointed this out to me, nowhere in the New Testament is there a single example of a woman receiving the Lord's Supper. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and yet we That's welcome. Right. Yeah, I, I can make a better argument. For, yeah. I think I can make a better argument for uh, denying the Lord's Supper to women than you can make for denying uh, baptism to children. Which, yeah. of course, do I think women took the Lord's Supper? Of course, it'd be ludicrous to say they didn't. Right. Exactly. You know. So, but there is not a single instance in Scripture in the New Testament of a woman receiving the Lord's Supper. Not one. And yet we allow women to come to the Lord's table. Why? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Again, th- this type of argumentation isn't really biblical argumentation. All right, now I'm going to fast forward just a little bit, um, you know, because we're going to be we're running out of time here, and I want to look at what he does 
with uh, with uh, First Peter chapter three twenty one, and then we'll finish off with what he does with John chapter three. Again, the point here is in looking at how he's handing the biblical text, because this isn't about Luther. This is about what the Bible teaches. And let's take a look at how Matt is handling these uh, biblical texts. So here's his uh, handling of First uh, Peter three twenty one that says, "Baptism now saves you." Here's what he says. Now, many of you were probably here a while back. I did a sermon on 1 Peter 3, 21. <clears throat> Let me just give you a, a quick overview. I'm just going to read this very briefly. 1 Peter 3, 21. Because there's so many Lutherans I've been talking to on Facebook and other places. And they say, baptism which now saves you. Oh, argument's over. I just won. If you literally believe the Bible, baptism saves. Argument's over. Listen. Claiming that you believe what the Bible literally says and understanding the context of what it's saying are two entirely different things. So he's going to basically argue that the context makes it clear that baptism doesn't save. That's what he's going to do. We continue. Okay. First Peter 3.20. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water... Baptism, now this word just, it's literally immersion. Immersion, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? Corresponds to eight people being saved through the ark. Exactly. He's got the right antecedent, by the way, and it is baptism. Which corresponds to this, now saves you. He's saying Noah's family was saved by being immersed in something. They were right the ark and the ark was the type and the type is, is christ we're immersed in christ in our baptism is that not right <laughs> he's making the argument for you yeah exactly that's what i felt when i was listening to this. let's continue they were immersed in the ark the ark saved them what corresponds to that now is you being immersed in Jesus Christ. You just keep reading the verse. Right. That's exactly what Ro- <laughs> that's exactly what uh, uh, Colossians 2 says. That's exactly what Romans chapter 6 says. Then in our baptism, we're baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. We're put into Christ. <laughs> he's, making, he's making our argument. Yes. I thought the same thing when I first heard this. I don't even know where you're going with this. Yeah. Does he not see it? What well, we we continue now? He goes with the removal of dirt. This supposedly the removal of the dirt uh, clause here negates that baptism saves. Listen in, not as a removal of dirt from the body. He says, "Don't uh, don't misunderstand me. I know the word immersion is used to refer to water baptism in Scripture. I'm not referring to that. Not the removal of dirt from the body. Where whoever thought that <laughs> baptism is a removal of dirt from the body?" I like that he's. I like that he's like insert inserting. Uh, Peter, here's what, here's why Peter said this: not as removal of dirt from the body. No, he didn't say that not to like show you that it wasn't the uh, a physical act. Right. Baptism is a spiritual thing. That's not what it is. He was thinking like, oh, oh, oh no! Like these people are going to think that I'm actually saying what I'm actually saying. Yeah. No, it's 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 ridiculous. He's actually making our argument for us, but he doesn't even see it. It's it's the weirdest thing because no, baptism is never referred to as a removal of dirt from your body. No, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, God's doing something you can't even see. <laughs> we continue, but this is something inward. But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, this is being immersed in Christ. Now I would say this: whatever you believe this verse means. P. 
Peter is limiting this salvation to those who have the ability to make an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and infants cannot do that. That is a ridiculous statement. The, the sentence says, baptism now saves you and makes it clear, not as a, as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Why? Because it, according to the other passages, baptism is for the remission of sins. I mean, it's, it's so clear what's going on here. And then he makes his assertions, and infants can't do that. The Bible's clear. Inf- well, uh, infants can't do that. Well, he says he said that, that, that it's an appeal to God. Like, he's saying that he's limited to those who can appeal to God, not realizing that Peter is saying that baptism is the appeal to God. Yeah, baptism and is the appeal. Infants can do that. Like, infants can be baptized. Therefore, that appeal can be made. Like, right. I, it, it's, a cra- it's a crazy thing. You know, when he starts off with it, it says, you know, context um, is going to you know, dictate uh, how you interpret this verse. It's like, well, that would be wonderful, but like, you're not using context. You're using presupposition is what's interpreting this verse for you. Yep, that's exactly it's right. Not, context it, has nothing. You're not you're not engaging in the context of this at all. Uh, it, it, you're, you you actually did read the verse and 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 for the most part rightly um, explain it, but then used your presupposition to take half of a sentence. And, uh, and put it against the rest of the, uh, the rest of the verse. Yeah, no, it's and and again, you just look at the writings of the church fathers, and they all say that it means that it saves. This is this was the the part of this sermon that that struck me the, the most odd. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of even seems like at the end there he's saying it that, that he realizes that like this is a huge problem passage because. You know, he does at the end there say, oh, whatever you think this means, you know, which, you know, basically, you know, he's saying, um, okay, like, this this seems pretty clear, but, but certainly we know that, like, it can't be for babies because it's an appeal to God for a good, co- good conscience, and uh, infants can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, again, he, he's not even dealing with what the text says. And the weird thing was is that he he actually early on made our case, and then you know, then at the end just threw this weird thing in there, and it's like, ugh, unbelievable. Okay, last of the text, and this is going to be from his uh, handling of John chapter 3. Again, we're just comparing notes here. You know, is he rightly handling these passages? So far, he has not. He's engaged in eisegesis, biblical twisting, semantical word games to take away what the you know what the text actually says, and it's just it's it's kind of bizarre what he's doing. But let's take a look at what he does with the Gospel of John, chapter three, and Jesus's words that you must be born of water and the Spirit. Listen in. <clears throat> now I'm going to skip. We're going to address John 3. If you want to talk to me later, we can talk about John 3. Okay, I know um, in this sermon that I skipped John chapter 3, and I've been asked about that reference to being born of water. What, what does that mean? Because I skipped it in the sermon. A number of people have come up to me afterwards and sought clarification. So let me talk about this. John chapter 3 is Jesus dealing with Nicodemus. Now, it's important to realize Nicodemus was a Jew, and uh, the Jews in, in that time believed that you were born into the kingdom physically as a Jew. And so let's look at John 3, 4. It says this, Nicodemus said to him, Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now notice this, Nicodemus is bringing up physical 
natural birth. And so Jesus answers them in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water. Now, I believe that water there is a reference to, to natural birth when a woman's water breaks. That's the universal sign or indication. That's what's causing uh, or about to bring about the birth of the child. If you want to know, man, when is this child going to come forth? It's when the water breaks. And Jesus is saying, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, Nicodemus, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, notice what he does in the next verse. He's going to parallel born of water with something, and then he's going to parallel uh, born of the Spirit with something. And he says this in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. He's saying that which is born of water is flesh. The flesh only produces flesh, Nicodemus. That's why you need more than the flesh to be in the kingdom. He says, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so, all right. So that I mean, that's the standard argument. You know that the, we're, D, Jesus is referring to natural birth. That's the fleshly birth, and that that's born of water because of the amniotic fluid. Um, and yet, you know, again, check the document out. None of the earliest Christians understood this text in that way. Not one. You know, instead, they all saw it as a baptismal text. So this is, again, you know, it's an obfuscation on his part in order to get away from what all these texts say. Yet, if you don't engage in any word games, you just take the text at face value and read them literally the way the ancient church read them, they all work together perfectly, and they mean exactly what they say. What do you think, Pastor Price? He also, uh, like, subtly there, and, and this always happens when, when, when people, when these guys do this. Um, they, they slip things in there and, and, and thinking that no one will notice, and maybe for the most part they don't. But they slip things in there like, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's saying, that which is born of the water is flesh. Now, now that's not what he said. Nope. He didn't say that which is born of the water is flesh, but he, he inserts it yep. as if it's just so obvious and so clear. But that's not what he said nope. at all. He said that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he, he doesn't say water equals flesh. That's, that's not what he says. And also, I, again, I think that you like, when you take things to like some, some conclusions, um, you end up in, in some real hot water because you're, you're saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Now, he is saying here like, what it will take to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, what, this is what it will take for you to be saved. Now, if, if I'm to take this, then, and say, like, well, that water is ambient fluid, then I must then say, like, well, so, so therefore, you know, what? What about the, the aborted baby? What about, what about the miscarried baby? Right. They're not born of water. Yeah. How, how, does, how does this work? Yeah. Um, so, it, so you're saying then that someone would, that a human being created by God in the womb would then, part of being part of the kingdom is actually passing through the birth canal, having the water break, that you are actually born, and then you have to be born again in spirit. But this doesn't work, right? Because, because no one is going to confess that. I mean, no one's going to believe that. And so water doesn't equal flesh here. That's not, that's not what he's talking about. Right. Right. No, it's ugh, it's so frustrating. And now this is one of the most clever arguments, and we're going to end with this argument. And this is another one. Again, notice that he's not engaging in a positive you know, hermeneutic saying, let's read these passages. Here's what they say. 
ta-da. Instead, it's here's what this passage says, but it can't mean that. So here's why it doesn't mean what it says. Every passage doesn't mean what it says. This this is a negative hermeneutic that he's engaging in. And this is one of the most clever arguments I have ever heard, but it falls flat on its face as soon as you push on it. Listen to this. What was the reason why baptism can't save? Well, because then you'd know where the, the spirit is at work and you can't know that. And, and listen to this argument. This is weird. Born of water is referring to water baptism. We know exactly where that spirit's going to blow and cause the second birth. And we know exactly when. And so Jesus is saying the spirit is sovereign. The spirit comes, it blows, it does whatever. You see the effects of it. You don't know where it came from. You don't know uh, where it's going. Now, if he's talking about baptism there... We know exactly, I, I know when that child goes into that water or that child is sprinkled on the head, you know exactly that's where the Spirit's doing the second birth. And so I think that argues against tying this physical act of water baptism um, to being born again. So the idea is is that if you know where the Spirit is working, because Jesus said you know, the Spirit blows wherever it wants, and you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. He, he says because it says that if if baptism actually you know saved you, remitted sins, washed away sins, and you know all those other things that the Bible says about baptism, well then you'd know where the Spirit was working. And since you can't know where the Spirit is coming from and where He's going, that means baptism can't save you. What kind of argument is that? It's a, it's, it's a crazy argument too. I mean, what, what if you apply that to, to everything in Scripture? So what if then I say like, well. It, it says what two or more are gathered in his name, that, that he's there with them. But that would be knowing where the Spirit is, so therefore that, that can't be true. You can't know for certain that where two or more are gathered, that, that, that he is there. You, you can't right. know that, because well, that, would, that would be, that would be uh, presuming upon the Holy Spirit, who is a, apparently a wild, free spirit and just does whatever he wants. Well, right, and this would completely negate, then, Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. Because right. we knew that the Spirit was working on the day of Pentecost, did we not? Okay. Yeah, yeah, Peter yeah. got up and he preached his great sermon, did he not? Okay. And doesn't it say faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ? So here he is preaching this great, amazing sermon, and there's people being brought to penitent faith and trust in Christ and being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Well, that means that this wasn't a move of God because we can see that we know for a fact that God the Holy Spirit was working. And other times in this in this sermon, too, you, you'll see him go back to, and I, and I would agree with this, but, but he'll, he'll go back to you that the, the, that the Spirit works through the Word of God. The yep. Spirit works through the Word of God, through the preaching of the Word. Like, he says this multiple times, and, and I agree um, that he does. But under this hermeneutic, if you interpret this, well, then you can't actually make that claim because, again, you are, you are professing to know yep. when and where the Spirit is at work. So yep. you would say that if the, if the Word of God is preached, then the Spirit is working. How does that work, then, if you say, like, well, you can't tie the Spirit down to, to be where he has said he'll be? Yep, that's exactly right. Now, so uh, let's play this quote again, and let's substitute the word baptism here for preached word. It, the, the, the preaching of the word cannot save people because you'll know that the Spirit is working. Listen again and just change baptism to the preached word and see if the whole thing doesn't come apart. Listen again. Now, if born of water is referring to water baptism, we know exactly where that spirit's going to blow and cause the second birth, and we know exactly when. And so Jesus is saying the spirit is sovereign. The spirit comes, it blows, it does whatever. You see the effects of it. You don't know where it came from. You don't know uh, where it's going. 
Now, if he's talking about baptism there, we know exactly. I, I know when that child goes into that water or that child is sprinkled on the head, you know exactly that's where the Spirit's doing the second birth. And so I think that argues against tying this physical act of water baptism um, to being born again. Yeah. So, yeah, because where the Word of God is preached, where the gospel is being proclaimed, we know then that the Spirit is working. Well, that argues against the Spirit actually working through the preached Word. I think it would. I think it would go against even like when he talks about repentance. You know, in another, in another text where he's like, you, you, you know, oh, you have to repent. That's you know, that's when that's when baptism. And he and he talks about repentance as being something that you can obviously identify in a person. Yeah. Well, wouldn't this then also be like, well, I know that where there's repentance, there the spirit of God is moving. That means that but that can't be the spirit of God doing it then. Exactly. Exactly. If you if you apply this to like all the places that we know. It's, it's, it's taking, you know, something that Jesus is saying and then uh, pitting it against all the, all the places that, yep. that the Scripture has promised that the Holy Spirit will work. We know that He works in the preaching of the Word. We know that, that we're two or more gathered, that, that Christ has promised to be there uh, with us. You know, and, and you say that you're, you're pitting this passage against those passages, and, and yeah. undoubtedly He's doing it, uh, to try to disprove uh, baptism. And the, and the Spirit, knowing that the Spirit does work in baptism like he has said he would. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, I, I think we've, um, <clears throat> we've drowned this particular topic to death, and uh, <clears throat> pun intended. But, uh, <laughs> Pastor Price, I, I thank you for coming on uh, the program today and walking with me through the biblical text on baptism. My, again, my hope is that as people listen to this, that they s- basically come to the conclusion, okay, those Lutherans... It's not that they don't have biblical texts to support their, their, what, their doctrine of baptism. No, they have them. And they take the passages of Scripture very literally. The question now is, have they rightly understood what those texts say? That's the question that I think people need to ask themselves and work through these biblical passages. And again, they can download the PDF that goes along with today's program that has all of the texts that we talked about today as well as the quotes from the church fathers in how they understood those texts and what they thought those texts were actually saying and what they meant. And you can download it off of the Fighting for the Faith website as well as off of our podcast feed. But again, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith, and I hope that this is a good resource for people uh, that it will, they will find not only challenging but comforting, but comforting for this reason. Because if you take the biblical passages literally regarding baptism, there's some very sure and certain promises from God in your baptism that even the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 encourages you to take up those promises and what's happened to you in baptism as weapons against sin and the temptations of the flesh so that you might fight off uh, the devil, the world, and your own sinful flesh and uh, persist in Christ. There's some great promises attached to them, and by doing that, then you can do what uh, Ignatius of uh, Antioch said in, in 110 A.D. Let your baptism be your armor, your faith, your helmet, your love, your spear, your patient endurance, and your panoply. That's our hope and prayer for you. Thanks for coming on, Pastor Price. I appreciate it. Great to see with you, Chris. Yes, and also with you. So there you have it. What'd you think? Yeah, I, I, like I said, I put myself out there on the firing line. Now your job is simple. Open up your Bible if you haven't already had it open. And read the document I sent you and ask the question, who rightly is understanding what these biblical texts say? And believe God's word. It's that simple. Don't believe me. Believe God's word. That's what we're all called to do. 
All right, so if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.